My name is Dustin Kelly, but everybody calls me DJ. I'm prior army, serving as both a Ford observer and a military police officer. I spent the last 14 and a half years as a police officer and detective in a large metropolitan police department. Two things that I've learned throughout my career. One, everybody has a story to tell. And two, the best stories are true. This is the DTD Podcast. In three, two, one, and we're live. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the DTD Podcast. This week in the studio, my special co-host, Chris Van Zant and I sit down with a legendary special operations warrior who entered the Army after high school in 1989. He immediately attended basic, airborne school, and the Ranger Indoctrination Program. After successfully completing all those courses, this guest was assigned to the 1st Ranger Battalion just in time to spin his ninth static line jump into Panama. But this was not the last time this man would see combat. In October 1991, he transferred to the Ranger Reconnaissance Detachment until 1995 when he became a freefall instructor. This guest went on to pass the selection and operator training course and was assigned to C-Squadron with the SMU. With 17 years in the unit and 13 combat rotation, this guest has been the tip of the spear in the war against terrorism. After retiring from active duty, this guest has worked as an instructor with VTAC and Sig Sauer. But that's not all. He's also a military technical advisor on blockbuster movies such as How It Ends, Extraction, Extraction 2, and The Gray Man. I'm so excited to have this conversation with these two. Please welcome Craig Chili Palmer. What's going on? Not much. Thanks for having me on, DJ, and good to see you again, Chris. I wanted to say hi to you too, Chris, but you're not the special guest, so I I just (laughs) skipped over you and went right to him. So let's get into this because I'm super excited about this. I think that this is going to be a great conversation because there's so much time that you've spent doing what you did, and you've really turned that second page in your life and really started that new chapter, which is what we talk about a lot on the show. Um, let's talk about, as we always do in the beginning, let's talk about youth, family, how you decided on the military and what put you down this path. I was that kid that always wanted to go in the military. I mean, for me, it was something that I know I said, uh, multiple times ever before ever even getting to high school and, um, and my, uh, 20 year reunion, which was a few years ago. Uh, one of my buddies was even telling my wife, it's like, you know, yeah, he was the only guy that did what he said he was going to do before high school. And, um, I mean, I remember as a kid having all sorts of army gear, not that my dad was in the air force from like 55 to 59. So it wasn't like it was, you know, something pushed upon anything. We, we had like one picture of him that we was on the wall from him in the air force, because that's just what you did back then. And then, uh, so they tried to get me to go to, you know, college and everything else. They wanted me to get that education, but I was just that kid that was, uh, just drawn to everything as far as the military and just, yeah, I wanted the challenge. Was there anything in specific or any specific military that you wanted to go into Marines, army, anything like that, that you thought about? Cause you, um, you mentioned that. And did you want to go that special operator route? You know, back then you didn't know everything under the sun, especially, you know, in the eighties, the there was a lot of, uh, I remember even going in, if you wanted to look at something in the recruiter's office, it was the, the big old, uh, 
you know, record disc, you know, CD that you'd put in there and it would spin off and play your little video. But um, I tried to go in the Marine Corps initially. That was just, I don't know. I just felt like, oh, the Marines, you know, everything up front, do this and do that. Um, but then that recruiter lied so much to me because I knew some of the stuff and we all have stories of recruiters lying. But so I went over to the army and said, all right, I want to be airborne ranger. And then he's like, okay, well, I don't know much about it, but I'll get you whatever information I can. And you know, this, that, the other. So it started off with a good relationship right away. Cause he wasn't trying to be something he wasn't. Um, and then, so yeah, I, it just, uh, didn't know the whole special op route. You know, I knew of course the Ranger battalions, uh, and then, a, then the SF, you, you knew of about other, you know, special mission units out there, but it was, you didn't know much about it other than what was put out in movies, which was pretty dang stupid, you know, along the way. But, um, I think it's just, you know, that, that thing of always wanting to, uh, compete and, you know, at least try for the best thing. Well, it's interesting that you say that about the Marines because a lot of guys that have come on here that have gone to the Marines first, they always say that the Marines told them, you know, when they said, hey, I want to go do this, I want to be infantry or whatever, they were like, uh, it, you just get the honor of being a Marine and we'll pick wherever you go. So it's it's strange to hear that they lied to you. What, can we go into a little bit of detail about what they lied about? Yeah, so what had happened, there was a few, uh, me and a couple buddies, we were all going in to sign up together and, uh, you know, go talk to the recruiter, do this, that, the other. And um, he's like, well, what do you guys want to do? Uh, you know, I was like, well, I want force reconnaissance and everything. And I'm, and he's like, well, I can't guarantee you that and everything else. You know, you can, you can try out when you get to a certain spot and all this. And I knew that kind of, I understood that a little bit, you know, but of course, the late 80s, that was when they really started guaranteeing a little bit more within the services as far as you know, job skill, not just all of a sudden open contract going in and getting something. And, uh, but what, what really got me, the more and more we talked with him, I was, he's like, yeah, airborne school and everything, but you know, we've got one and it's, it's harder than the army school and all this stuff. And right then and there, I was like, okay, I know the guy's lying to me. There's only one airborne school. Everybody goes to it. You know, I knew enough of that. And, um, he just was a pain in the ass and it was just, all throughout, I mean, I think he was the, the kid that got his lunch money stolen, but then all of a sudden now he's, you know, goes to in the Marine Corps, then he's wearing the uniform back at school. And now the 13-year-olds, uh, 14-year-olds think he's cool. So I think he was just that guy and he just kept blabbing off. And um, even when I took the ASVAB test, you know, it takes like what it took a little bit before you got your results back then because it was you know, the number two pencil filling in the little bubble. <laughs> and, uh, but he even tried to call me, Oh, you could do anything you want in Marine Corps, this, that, the other based off my ASVAB and GT score. But I was like, no, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm going in the, the army. You, you guys, you know, you lied. I'm, I'm out. <laughs> so let me ask you, 89 is when you go in, you're right at, you're in a different era. And the reason I say that is because if you look over the span of your career, you really kind of filled in like three eras of military service. So into the Cold War in the 80s, 90s were relatively quiet around the world. Uh, and then, you know, after September 11th happens, it, it opens up a whole new thing. So can we kind of talk about the three different phases that you went through? And even if you agree that it was three different phases. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it, you know, and Chris can probably attest to some of this because, of course, he was in high school and stuff when I was, uh, you know, in the 90s with things. But <laughs> but um, when you look at it, yeah, the 80s, it was, you know, 
after the Reagan years, everything else, so that the military finally got ramped back up. They actually, you know, got better pay raises at the time, everything else. And we all know the military is always going to be behind the, the power curve on, on anything that the government says is, um, you know, basically lower income and everything else. I mean, the military is there. But outside of that, it was a lot better um, kind of understanding a little bit more of the military and getting in and pay and benefits and everything. And everybody understood that a little bit more and it was better than um, what had previously been in the early eighties. Um, but the nineties, yeah, the nineties, because when you think of Panama, yeah, I'd lucked out. I was, you know, I got to, I think first bat somewhere beginning of, um, you know, December and was only there really not, I don't even think I was there two weeks when we went and jumped into Panama. So my ninth jump was literally that into, into Panama. And, um, so then it was about not knowing anything because that that kind of episode was for me, you know, I was a PV2. I wasn't even in the army six months and uh, I was scared to death. Excuse me. And um, so with everything there, I just wanted to, to redo that because I was I was like, I knew nothing, didn't do anything, you know, spectacular. Nothing really happened for us. I mean, granted, yeah, jumped in and all that stuff, but it just seemed like not knowing anything it was like i i was just basically you know just following everybody you know that i could um so it was kind of wanting to redo that and then the 90s was chasing all those different conflicts and it was a it was something pop up here something pop up here you know we get all these little skirmishes um you know i think what well we had somalia then we had the the possible haiti operation um what restore hope whatever it was with that and um you know, you had all these little things and then Bosnia kicks up. Um, but it was so far and few in between, you know, Bosnia was kind of like what was going on. It's going on now with Ukraine and Russia, you know, that's still in Europe and everybody tries to stay away from it. Hey, we'll feed them arms and everything else. But, you know, the, the U.S. military is doing their advising. Um, so then, you know, and also being able to be in up at Bragg, you know, prior to 9-11 was great because, you know, it was all about training for that one little piece. Hey, it might happen. It might happen. Who knows what happens? Hey, but we got to be ready for this. So it was a constant mindset of, you know, really preparedness, you know, but it nobody knew what that preparedness was in a way, as far as, you know, oh, we can kind of attest it's going to be this battlefield. It's going to be this. It's going to be that, you know, there was just so much unknown because again, just kind of chasing those little, you know, conflicts that popped up. And then, yeah, 9-11 changed the, the whole world. And then, um, we knew, you know, what we're doing. We knew now where the battlefield was, we knew what was going to happen from there, you know, and then of course Iraq and everything else going on with that. But I remember, uh, it was me and Mikey Hefner, um, and a few other guys, we all flew up to Boston on nine 11. We were flying up there to, uh, do a vehicle, uh, extrication course in Plymouth mass. And so we landed, um, cause we took off from RDU landed in Logan, after both towers had fallen, nobody knew what the heck's going on. The, the pilots saying all this stuff, even like, oh, military guys, stand up, all this, let them out first, everything else. And, um, you know, he even opened the door. We're standing in the aisle and he starts taxiing with the door open. We're all standing. So we're like, okay, something's really up. Then we get out all the martial law and all that stuff. But then we were down in Plymouth. They were like, hey, just stay where you're at. We don't know what's going on, everything else. You know, just go through this the course. Just do what you're doing right now you know, we'll figure things out. Um, but Mikey and I were out on a run. I think it was out near the Plymouth Brock area. And it's like, you know, Hey, you know, the world just changed for us. I mean, so much is going to change, 
you know, everything. Now we know it's not a matter of if, but now we know we're going to be involved in the conflict and who knows, you know, we didn't know how long it would last. We, you know, just knew though it was going to be something that was going to bring us there for a bit. Chili, I just wanted to back up for one sec. When, when you, when you were in rip, cause you came straight out of rip, got assigned to 175 and then basically jumped into Panama. Did you know in RIP that Panama was spinning? Like, did they say anything to you guys? Or did you show up to 175 and you guys were <laughs> doing rehearsals? <laughs> that, yeah, that's kind of funny because it was, uh, you know, showed up to 175, didn't know nothing. No, nobody knew anything. Nobody was talking about anything there. We had, uh, um, Basically, it was Eglin Air Force Base. There was the uh, we did the rehearsal there for Panama, but nobody knew it was a rehearsal. Um, if some people did, well, then their hats off to them because, granted, I was a private and I would avoid going down one end of the hallway to get so I wouldn't get smoked by the you know tab spec fours and weapon squad uh, just going to chow. But uh, <laughs> you know, I'd take the long way. But you know, so there was nothing about it. And then we did the Eglin Air Force. Uh, we landed, jumped into Eglin, did a whole bunch of different things you know, kind of some raids and stuff like that. But uh, as nice little PV2 private, you know, fresh out of rip, I got to stay for, you know, collecting all the shoots and everything. <laughs> so I got back like, I don't know, this is like a Friday. We got back late Saturday. So Sunday, you know, we're all sitting around watching the Simpsons Christmas special, which came out and I'm shining my boots because I'm going to wear my uniform home, all that stuff. You know, as a private, you like to, you know, look cool and think you're cool and you you're you still have a lot of you know pride and everything but uh yeah shining <laughs> boots and all that stuff and uh <laughs> boom we they start yelling bravo notification bra and then you know phone shut off everything this that the other and it's like what the heck's going on i'm like what's going on so um yeah i had no idea of any of that yeah, I was just curious because like we're similar in that like you showed up to except it was your first unit, but you showed up and basically went straight to war. And I did the same thing when I joined you in Afghanistan mm -hmm. and it was such a bizarre thing. But I, but I wasn't, you know, 18 years old and <laughs> and I, I kind of knew something was coming. I at least had a little precursor. You had nothing. You just well, out of the gates. So that's interesting. Oh yeah, it was crazy because the the time that we jumped in to Panama on twenty December, which is zero one zero three, I was supposed to be getting off a plane in Phoenix to go home on leave. So my parents are at the airport, even though this was two days later. I was supposed to call them Sunday to let them know because again, everything was paper ticketed back then that they yep. sent my ticket. You know, and I was going to call them. I was like I said, I was shining my boots watching the Simpsons Christmas special, and bam, we get alerted so that. The next thing they heard from me was, uh, I think it was the 4th or 5th of January when I got back to Savannah and then called. Yeah. Them. <laughs> well, that's what they say. Like people, you know, a lot of listeners probably don't realize like that was, this is pre-cell phone, pre-everything. So they basically locked you down. No phone calls, no telling anybody anything. Like you were, you were no contact until you were already done doing what you were doing. <laughs> it was funny because they let us on uh, Christmas, they, they said, all right, everybody can write a note, you know, to, to home or whatever, and then we'll we'll mail them out, do whatever. I forget how they did it, but it was, yeah, a little green notebook piece of paper I wrote something on. I think <laughs> I think I have that now because my dad kept so much stuff from when I went in and everything else. And um, I think I have that because I, I have letters from when I was in basic training. 
I have letters from that I wrote home, of course, to when I was in uh, first got to battalion. Then when I was in ranger school, when you could, you know, you're sitting there at some point trying to stay awake, writing, writing something down. But um, yeah, it's funny. They got the letter the same day I called uh, the little, well, the little notebook piece of paper. So yeah, no, no. Commu- Merry Christmas in Panama. See you when I return. Yeah. It's like, Hey, I'm good. I'm all right. Everything's good. You probably know where I'm at. Thanks. And then here was a funny thing. I actually got a letter cause my friend's father was a big mentor for me when I was growing up with the military. Um, like I said, my dad never really pushed anything, did anything. He just wanted us to succeed in whatever we wanted to do, but he wanted us to get an education. Um, but my friend's father was in uh, the military early on, was an artillery guy, then uh, SF, and this was all during, you know, the 60s and stuff. And uh, so he was in Vietnam for a little bit, things like that. But he wrote me a letter, and I got it actually when I was over there in Panama. And he's like, I still have it too, because he's like, I'm so je- – all this stuff. But he's like, I'm jealous you got your, you know, your combat jump wings, your CIB, all this stuff, blah, blah, blah. So, I mean, it was just hilarious because he knew right away. So he wrote, like, right – probably the next day from the invasion when we jumped in. So it's, it's hilarious, but yeah, I got that actually in Panama. <laughs> wow. Well, we, well, we won't talk about, uh, Chris, we won't talk about basic training with Craig. Um, it was yeah. a, not a great topic with Jesse. So, uh, we'll, we'll skip right <laughs> over the letters with basic. So I do want to ask you though, something about Panama. I had heard that you, you had rechecked and checked your weapon over and over and over again. Can can we talk about that, about what happened with the weapon? Yep. Yeah. A, a big uh, learning curve for me was, you know, status check. So everybody talks about status checks. Hey, let me do a press check, this and that, the other, your gun and all that. And, um, and Kyle taught me a good way. And I, I teach people to this still today. You know, it's about knowing the round count, where the rounds are in the top of the magazine. You put it in, you cl- you know, whether the bolts open and you close the bolt or you pull it back, release, let it go and everything, but take the mag out. Now you feel where the top round is again. Now with 29, it's going to be on the left side. So, you know, you loaded around. It didn't go anywhere else. It's not like a sock in the dryer. So in Panama, I kept sitting there pulling back, pulling back, hit my forward assist. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just want to make sure I'm loaded. You know, just no clue what the heck I'm doing anyway. I had a had a 203. Uh, I think I only shot TP rounds, never shot an HE round, but I'm running with a full, that full rack full of them. They're dropping out of the holes because the holes are so big. And so I'm putting safety pins underneath. I'm glad that they have a fuse that protects them. You know, the inertial fuse that doesn't go off till it, what is it, 15 meters and based off it spinning and all that stuff. And then it pulls the fuse out internally, all that. Those things are dropping all over the place. I'm picking them up. Um, but yeah, I kept doing that. We, this is during the first day and like I go into this room with, the, it was just another squad leader from another, uh, from one of the other squads. And he like started just shooting into the refrigerator and stuff. I'm like, well, screw it. I'm going to shoot click. Nothing. Cause of why I kept press checking, press checking and all this and trying to do a status check. If somebody would have come out, I would have died. <laughs> so I got one. So, you know, for people that don't know, like when you when you do a jump in combat, you, you get what's called a mustard stain. You get a, a yellow or a gold star on your jump wings, um, just like you get a combat infantryman badge for serving in combat as an infantryman. So when you jumped into Panama, and I think it's funny that you said nothing really happened and I didn't do a whole lot. But when you got back to battalion, 
you were a PV2 with a mustard stain. Did you feel different? Like, did you, were you like, like I'm a badass, or were you still like, I'm a ranger private, and I haven't been to ranger school yet? <laughs> you know, you kind of felt, yeah, you kind of felt like a badass here and there, but you know that still some of the tab spec fours that were in ranger school and got out of ranger school but didn't have the scroll on the, the combat scroll and also the stain and all that, they still smoked your bags. But, like, we would be out on patrolling because that was, you know, patrolling is a new word for some of the kids in regiment now they don't even know what yeah. that is um but you know we're out in the woods and savannah and all that stuff not even woods but the swamps and then we would do a uh, scroll to the road you know when you're crossing danger area and it was always left of course because that was where your unit patch was but we would sit there and go which one and get down you <laughs> son of a bitch <laughs> little little victory right there oh yeah so you can at least you know chuckle while you're getting your bag smoked and actually in panama i got my bag smoked at a block position that we were doing because uh, I was uh, everybody cut their self out of their their stuff with the bayonet because everybody's like, oh, it's going to take forever to do things. Oh, OK, take the bayonet. Clap. I left my bayonet. Yep. I go, uh, hey, where's your bayonet? Sensitive items inventory. Uh, uh, I don't know. Sorry. You mean, Get you mean down. That wasn't, bayonet wasn't tied down. <laughs> <laughs> nope. Well, no, I, I asked that. I asked that question about the stain mm -hmm. because, I mean, you know as well as I do, but maybe people listening don't. Like, when you show up to regiment and you see a guy with a mustard stain, it's like another level. It's like, oh, yeah. like, wow, that guy jumped out of an airplane into combat. That's amazing. So I was just curious, like, being a private, did it still give you a status lift or, you know, or like you said, it was take it when a you little can. bit. Yeah, a little bit. And then, you know, as a smart assery goes, you know, you, you you get a little say in some of it, you know, and just you can give the dig back to some of those tab spec fours that didn't get to go. But then once you come back from ranger school and you're tabbed and you got, you know, your mustard and everything and, you know, then it carried a little bit more weight. But yeah, I mean, it was kind of funny with, uh, you know, how it was because now it's like then combat scroll everything. I mean, I still I have always worn my first ranger battalion scroll on my right shoulder in my dress greens you know, all throughout, because to me, that was a, like the most important thing. That was, that was where I really got baptized into the military, not really baptized under fire. You could say, yeah, there was some little things going on here and there, and it could have been a mile away, but it felt like it was, you know, 10 feet away from me. But yeah, I kept, you know, the first range of battalion scroll on my, on my dress greens the entire career. Well, it's significant. I mean, not <laughs> how many people have jumped in to combat and, and not really since, World War II, well, Grenada in 83, handful of folks, but then then Panama, like, and then, you know, the the show jumping in Iraq or a couple of times, but <laughs> you know what I mean? Like not very many people have done that in history and it's a significant event. So I can see why, you know, it was that important to you. Yeah, it was great. You know, I, like anything else that, you know, that you get a little bit of pride when you start really realizing the significance of something, you know, like a lot of the things that we experienced over our course, you know, in our career together, you know, even, but the significance in some of the events that we were involved in. Um, and at that time, yeah, because that was a, the little snippets of things that would last, you know, maybe two weeks, no more than a month, you know, Somalia, then, you know, things lasted for a little bit there based off of, you know, the catastrophic incident. But um, yeah, it was, it was pretty neat just as when you got back, you know, to got home and were able to just kind of soak it in as 
here I am not even in the army six months and all this happens. I'm like, these guys going to Vietnam. Oh my gosh. You know, yeah. I couldn't imagine what they did because basic training was sped up and they didn't really get much after that unless, you know, they did things here and there in country. So let me ask you something. You, you tell us on here that there wasn't a lot to Panama. You didn't do that much, <clears throat> but I want to talk to that young Chile that goes home after Panama and is seeing girls and friends. How are you talking about Panama then? Is it a is it a bigger deal? Because you're making it out to be a very small deal with us. But I have a feeling it was a lot bigger. Oh, yeah, it was. You know what I mean? That time, too, that's the significance. Because I say it wasn't a huge deal. Yeah, I mean, I saw um, uh, Ranger Markwell, our, our, one of the medics, battalion medics. He was, he was killed um, just out in front of me a little bit. I mean, still a couple hundred meters away, but I saw the exchange of fire and everything else. Um, so... I mean, it was significant in some of that. And then it was the first time seeing dead guys, some of the Panamanians, things like that. So there was a lot to it. But I think the reason why it it's kind of like, um, you know, not really pushed aside. But for me, it's like, oh, yeah, that was it was nothing really. Because everything else that, you know, we experienced along the way, especially, you know, Chris and I in there. And then even, you know, um, you know, just even the deployments we had when we weren't together with everything. There was a lot more going on, a lot more, you know, we became a, a combat force versus just a conflict force. Um, but I tell you, I was so scared that morning when we were getting all our ammo and all this stuff, I, I knew I had to eat. I had to choke down a couple pieces of French toast and all this. And I, cause I just, I was like, I know I have to eat cause there's no way, you know, I can't do this without eating. So it was, uh, yeah, I didn't have much sleep those two days before we went. Um, just because of just the sheer unknown. And then I said after Panama, I was like, I never want to jump into combat again because it's just so many things going through your mind with the unknown of what can happen. First, your shoot has to open, granted, very high percentage of <laughs> static line. But, okay, what if I have twists? What if I land in a tree? What if my rucksack separates and it's over here and this? And, you know, I mean, we had the uh, – the dual point what if of my bayonet's system. not tied down? Yeah, I mean, you you get smoked on a block position. I mean, you don't want that <laughs> in combat. Oh, <laughs> yeah. it's funny. I'm sitting there with my my you know the the uh, M203 over my hands on the ground, just doing push-ups, and then these cars are driving by. They're stopping them, letting them through this net. I'm on the side, just oh yeah, yeah. It was funny. You know, did, did but, it change? Uh, Go ahead, Chris. I was just going to say, like, like I got lucky, right? Like, I, I joined you guys in Afghanistan. And so I, I felt like when I got there, we're in combat. I felt like, the, well, at least my team, at least you guys cared about me being prepared for whatever we were getting ready to do. Like, that was important to you. And it made me feel good and better and sort of empowered. Like, the, they're not just letting me figure it out on my own. Did you feel like in that short period of time, people were looking after you or were you just like a deer in the headlights, whatever they tell me to do, I'm going to go do. Oh, uh, deer in headlights. I knew where the assembly area was when we jumped. I knew what building it was because we did get to see some satellite photos, but it wasn't, you know, like one over the earth type satellite photo. But my squad leader said to me, just do what your team leader does and you'll be okay. <laughs> just follow the it. leader, man. Follow the leader. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. So, yeah, it was a, a lot different than, too, when you came across and came over and joined us over in Afghanistan because, you know, not that, that we really were engaged really in, 
in any really combat going on. We, we knew what the, there was. So anytime we went out, there was a consequence or could be, you know, we didn't really get in firefights and everything like that there, but we had a lot more training and a little bit more understanding of what the heck's going on. So it yeah. was, yeah, it was knowing you're coming into the team. We're a team. We got to now make sure everybody's good and everybody can count on each other. So it was a well, definite it, team there. And it makes a difference, right? Like, like you guys all had, well, half my team when I joined you guys had combat experience, Re regardless of when and where or what it was you had, you had been in combat before. Um, that probably wasn't the case when you got to regiment. There probably wouldn't. I mean, maybe you had a Grenada guy, but probably not, right? There was just a couple Grenada Raiders, yeah. And um, yeah. so it wasn't – yeah, I mean, the experience – like my squad leader was in the 82nd for uh, during Grenada. But, yeah, I mean, that that was a words of advice. You know, hey, just do what your team leader does and you'll be okay. I'm like, who, who? <laughs> so let me tag on to Chris's question. Does it with with having that? I don't want to say lack of leadership because I don't think it was a lack of leadership. I think that's just how things were done. Did it change the way you soldiered, though? Did it change the way you perceived your job from basic and all that kind of stuff? Do you get a whole new view or maybe a view from 30,000 feet by then? Yeah, I think it did. It definitely changed a lot of things for me. Like um, one of the things especially was like, okay, you know, things can happen at a moment's notice. We never know now, you know, um, how fast things can change. You just don't think that as a kid, as a teenager, everything else. So for me, I always wanted, like I said earlier, was, you know, I felt like I wanted a chance to redo what I was in, involved in and everything because I just didn't know anything. So I wanted to know and wanted to try and always get that mindset of what it would be like if I was in combat. Not that I really knew what that mindset was when it became a, you know, a two-way gunfight, you know, because again, the only time I went to shoot my gun, it was, it went click because I was messing with it too much. So, uh, <laughs> but just the idea of just, I know I'm going in a situation that, you know, th th this isn't a training event type thing. So, I think I always tried to get that mindset and get that understanding and really make sure I knew what I was doing, but then also tried to, you know, uh, you know, at that time, then when I became a leader, then in regiment and, uh, everything else after that, I was a team leader for a short bit and first bat before I went to RRD, but, you know, at least be honest with the guys and just try to, you know, try to teach them for the best you can and make them understand you know that um there are consequences to things because we can get blown out tomorrow in a, and all of a sudden we're somewhere that we never thought we'd ever be you're very humble and you talk very matter-of-factly about the mistakes that you made do you think in today's society that that humility and that humbleness is gone and more people want to know what they did right than what they did wrong or looking at it from a different direction yeah, and it's funny you say that because I was just up at the uh, the Matt Light Foundation uh, helping them with the fundraiser and everything like that for uh, all the stuff that they're doing for the kids, trying to get kids uh, really to be men, to be, you know, to grow up in the right manner and understand a lot more about life and everything. But we were talking on stage. Uh, it was myself and Kevin and another gentleman that, um, you know, was with us at the unit. 
Um, but he asked certain things we thought about. And like uh, Kevin was saying, honesty, I said humility. And uh, our other friend said, uh, talking about the wokeism and everything and understanding, you know, where things are kind of gone downhill for some folks with that. But I think humility is huge because I saw that too when I was also cadre, you know, back when we were at Bragg, um, you know, teaching back to the guys. And some of the newer guys just, they didn't understand it. They, they, they thought, you know, it was that whole thing, everybody get a ribbon and all that stuff. And I think, you know, you learn from your mistakes. We don't want to make mistakes, but you have to own them. If you did it, you own it. You know, I mean, that's the truth. And also be honest with your people. Um, but I think, I think a lot of society has lost that humility because everybody seems like they think they deserve something or owed something versus how do I earn something? How do I get to the next level by doing what I need to do versus what somebody can give me? Well, speaking of that, you've worked over at VTAC and with Kyle, he, he talked a lot about that when he was on the show where we don't really talk about what we did right because that's what we're supposed to do is right. We need to figure out what we did wrong to fix that situation. And I'm guessing you're kind of in that same school of thought. Oh, hundred percent. And Chris could attest to this too with our AARs. Yeah. It's like, yeah, okay. We did that right. We did that right. But all right, here's what we did wrong. And we could spend an hour on one little thing based off the severity of the issue, even in training, you know? So, I mean, I think that's, that's huge. And, and we always used to say during the AAR, you have to have thick skin because you're going to hear what other people perceive, but also what other people can tell you what you did wrong. And you have to understand, okay, now how do I fix it? So it doesn't happen again, which is the purpose of the AAR. Can that ever go wrong? Can it be, can it put those training scars on someone? You know, um, I don't know. I don't think we've seen a lot of it, but I think that some people can, hold to some of that, especially if it's, uh, you know, I, I didn't mean to chuckle with it, but there, there are some, it, it seems incidents. like you're thinking of someone specifically in your head. No, no, no. <laughs> I mean, was I a dick at times of Chris? Yeah. I mean, we, you know, we were all dicks in, in a, one way or another, but, um, you know, I think it's though sometimes within training, yes, we can, we think that, you know, this is the way it's going to be. This is the way it's going to be. And some people, uh, some leaders not saying that we really had those at, at the unit, but just experience along the way with with things um, like for me and Ranger Battalion, things like that. There was a lot of micromanaging going on and everything else. So some of that stuff can lead, you know, how they train you and how they did things could leave a scar. Um, I didn't feel too much of that. I mean, Chris, what what do you think with some of that? No, I was going to say earlier, I mean, you made a comment that you, you carried it on, like the things that you learned, you carried it on. And you and I, we had, because we were at war for a really long time, we had a number of times where, where Chili got into me, rightfully so. Um, it's amazing how the years go by and you get a lot more clarity as an individual about why somebody <laughs> did something. But But even at the time, it wasn't like you were just criticized and tore down. You were told what you did wrong. And then you were told why it was incorrect and, and what you should do to fix it or how you could do it differently the next time. It wasn't just you screwed up and that's the end of it. So it was a learning experience each and every time. Um, but then I'd also say, like, you know, we lived in a little different world of, of hypercriticality that, that I don't know exists across the board in the military. And DJ, I'm not sure if that's where you were going, but, you know, that, that 
but I think Chili would probably agree, but I, I think that does wear on you over time. When you live for a long period of time in an incredibly hypercritical environment, even though it's constructive, um, it, it has some impacts on your psychology and your life for sure. And, and yeah, and that's kind of where I was going to. Do you ever think that it, it could make that training score where people second guess what they're doing or uh, they might move a little slower or anything like that is kind of the area that I was going into because you live in that situation for so long in your life. I mean, it becomes a day to day thing where every single day you're you're having to prove yourself over and over. And I think you would both agree to that. Yeah, and I, I get you on that point. You're right. I mean, when it comes to a lot of things like that where, like you said, I mean, how, you know, finite we were with everything and everything had to be, you know, really good. You know, you 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 worked every day just to be average there because you were surrounded by that many good people. Um, so I think, you know, that could with some of the, the things as scars as far as, you know, sometimes they were good scars, though, because it was a scar that you knew, OK, this is what happens when this goes on based off having role players involved in things like that, which actually helps quite a bit, you know, to go against an opposing force, you know, with the simunitions and everything. But, um, yeah, because I was looking at more of a negative thing when you say scars, I always think negative side of scars. Um, but I think some of it can be positive. But, yeah, I mean, it depends on. Um, things I saw in the regiment was all training wise and it could be, it was, there was some negativity just because again, leaders were living in this environment of really a garrison soldier. And then it was a conflict here and then a conflict here, but it was like a conflict. I remember the guys coming back from three, seven, five after Somalia and I was, um, you know, in regiment, but then right away, it's like, all right, yeah, Hey, you know, spit and polish, you know, we got a, we got a starches and spits spits inspection you know tomorrow whatever and they, they just get back from everything that they dealt with in somalia so i mean we had to get rid of some of that garrison mentality early on in the war but i think the army's falling back on that garrison mentality and the wokeism do you want to go into a little more detail about it i mean because i think military... you're in an interesting situation <laughs> right now because you have all these years of military but you're in the center of wokeism now working in Hollywood. Yeah, you know, you're right. There's a lot, lot to deal with there. I mean, but I think it's what I, what I've kind of gone into that environment with is, um, you know, just treat people nice, just be, treat people like you'd want to be treated. I can't go off like I would in the military, you know, where you just right away, go right up, go to, you know, to 11 on the volume, you know, like spinal tap and stuff. But, um, you know, you, you've got to understand and be able to explain something to people. Uh, but when the military as a whole is putting together these, this whole woke criterion, worrying about pronouns and everything else, but yet when the conflicts that are going on and things that are there, the nasty withdrawal we did, or basically, you know, run from Afghanistan and just leave people behind and do everything. I mean, that, that you've have no faith in your, you know, top leaders there that they're not in your direct chain of command as far as, you know, you're right there, your day to day basis. But when they're up there in the government level and they're not supporting you and they're telling you that you got to worry about this guy because he wants to wear makeup. I don't know. I think that's a little off. Chris, your thoughts. 
No, I don't get started. I'm, I'm, I mean, I, you're you're far removed. I'll say this. No, to Chili to Chili's earlier point, you know, it's different when when you're in the military. That uh, that being critical, that being hard on one another, is part of that growth and professional development to prepare you for combat. And when you when you separate and you leave, you very quickly, if you don't know it already, you very quickly realize that everyone else out there is not like that or wired like that or capable with dealing with that level of criticism in the way in which we do it in the military. Um, so you have to make adjustments and an intelligent person, a leader, um, just like Chili's done, you know, learns how to, to dial that back and to present things in a way that people understand. <laughs> but, but, but to the, to the wokeism thing, there's a reason why for the first time, literally in like history, we're not filling the ranks. Um, there, there's a myriad of reasons, but you know, trophy society plays a big part of that and, and a lot of what's going on right now. Um, and it's kind of scary, frankly, to me, it's a scary time in that, you know, what happens, what happens when, when we need them and we don't have them, um, because we've turned into, you know, masculinity being a negative trait. So let me ask you both then with this, and I'm looking at the whole army and then let's look at special operations with this going on and all of these threats, you have Korea, China, Russia, Iran. There's a multitude of threats out there. What happens when we go too far to the left? We'll say is the wokeism too far to the right is conservative, but what happens when we fall too far on that scale? What happens to the big military and then what happens to the special operations? I like to look at it as uh, they they briefed us on this way back when, when they were trying to change the military and they came up with the 15-year retirement, everything like that in the early 90s, stuff like that was they briefed. They were like, no more Task Force Smith, which was a task force that happened in Korea um, because people were ill-trained, ill-equipped, everything else. So it was about just filling ranks versus training and doing things the right way mm -hmm. and getting people qualified in the right manner. And then you send them off. Now, all of a sudden, they're in Korea and they're fighting in this war here, you know? So, um, I think what happens is you, you lose that, the sense of what the military is. You know, we all know when you go into the military, all of us that have done it, you know, you give up certain rights to protect the constitution of the United States of America, you know, against, you know, foreign and domestic threats. So there's certain things that you give up to wear that uniform. Granted, you can, do what you want when you don't have the uniform on to a degree, but you still have to understand that you're, you're part of that uniform, you know, whether or not you're in civilian clothes or you're in your, you know, uh, military fatigues, battle dress, whatever you want to call it anymore, your, your multicam, you know, stuff. And so I think, um, we're getting so far away from what the military really is. It, it, it is a, an element there to protect the country, the, to protect the the interests of the United States of America. And it is primarily used outside the states. Of course, we know Posse Comitatus, all that stuff, right? Because we can't really do anything internally. But, you know, people go to these rallies, people go do this and they do that as far as trying to speak. Or you even see it all over the place. Some people in uniform at some of these protests and stuff. Granted, you know, everybody has the right to protest is there for because of the flag, you know, the the right to do certain things 
along the way, the, all these amendments we have, you know, the freedom of speech and everything else, they're there because people have, have fought and died for this country, you know, and we're taking that away by trying to make the military the same level as civilian world itself, you know, and that's why I say like that woke thing doesn't play within the military because, you know, society as a whole is, is one piece. The military is a separate entity. But like Chris said, too, with the recruitment, and everything else, everybody's so far down because, you know, we uh, I don't know. I I butcher the saying whenever I try to do it. But, you know, hard times create hard men. Easy times create easy, easy men or basically pussies. And um, that's where we're at, because everybody expects something because we're giving so much. The government's giving so much to people versus people having to earn things. And 100 percent, some people deserve this this stuff because of where it is and what's going on. And people have, you know, issues all along the way. And sometimes it's not none of their you know, fault. But um, I think we need to take care of people. But we also need to make people own up for what is right and wrong. And we're not doing that. Yeah, there was a saying, I mean, we used to say it in the military all the time, like the the military is there to protect democracy, not practice it. Um, and it was a tongue in cheek saying and kind of a joke, but it meant you you stand for something bigger. You are you are the, the gatekeeper. You are the thing that allows Americans to have the freedoms and liberties that they do and, and vote in elections and make changes to things and do all those things. But it's a different it's a different baseline. Um, and once you start injecting the outside world into the military, um, you're losing not only some capability, um, but you're losing that capability and, and that, that willingness to go do those things um, because you've allowed that stuff to creep in. And I really feel like personally in the last like 10 years in particular, you know, the, the, the government has kind of turned the military into a bit of a social experiment, you know, being the, on the front lines of incorporating things and making changes. And I'm not saying that those changes are bad. Um, it's just that's not the place to conduct social experiments. Um, those folks have got to be prepared for whatever is going to happen in any eventuality. Um, and you can't have a force that goes, well, I don't want to do that today. Um, and it's, it's, it's a kind of a scary, <laughs> stop yelling at me. Well, <laughs> so does it ever creep into that, that special operations community? Cause you would agree. Like we said, the civilian world is one thing. The military is a completely other world. Wouldn't you agree that that special operations is another level of a whole nother world? Yeah, I think, um, kind of, if you look at what, what's going on today with everything is, you're getting less good people that want to join. And of course, first you're getting less people that want to enlist, you know, enlistment was at an all time high after nine 11, you know, September 12th, Patriots day. That was when the country actually was one and everybody came together and understood something. We've lost that. Um, we've lost that along the way and we want to blame someone else for everything that's going on. Um, so I think, you know, again, the recruitment you're getting, a fewer pool of people to go in, you're getting an even smaller group of people that really want to try, you know, try to, to be the best. And so that's, that is probably happening today. You know, granted, I'm not in there. I'm not everywhere, but I do know that, you know, um, when you have a large pool of people shrink down, that's coming in, 
there's less and less good people really wanting to go to those those areas. And, you know, there's certain things still where we were at. We weren't sheltered from the army. We were still in the army. So there's certain things we had to do, certain, you know, requirements, everything else that, you know, DOD puts out, everything else. So and a lot of it. Yeah. Hey, you know, it had to be done. It's, it's a changing of times. Ch- times change. But again, a social experiment, like Chris is saying, is not the place for the military. And that kind of seems like where some things have happened. And it's you know, my son's been in for seven years now and down at first bat. And, you know, it's funny listening to him talk now. Now he's a squad leader and everything. So it's just it it's funny to hear his perspective of things because he's really seeing the change. You know, I'm just on the outside, you know, talking to the guys that are in or, you know, some of us retired folks that get together and drink bourbon and talk. Yeah, I remember the day when I did this. But um you know, so he's really seen the, the change and he was part of that, you know, 9-11 kid. I mean, he was turned six when I was in Afghanistan the first time in 02. So, you know, here it was and he went to the same battle uh, battle space that I was at, but also other spots now. And, you know, I think it just stinks for them because there's just so much that he saw early on with that, how we were a combat force and now we're going back to this garrison force and it's like, you know, Hey, hold on this. We, we need to, you know, be cuddle buddies now, I guess. I don't know. It just sucks. Well, let's go back into your career for a minute. Uh, I want to talk about you being a free fall instructor. Now, Chris gave you a huge compliment whenever we talked about uh, you doing this. And he said that you made everybody else a better flyer that was around you. So can we talk about you going there, what you learn, and and this is kind of the beginning of your instruction um, because you've instructed a lot of your life and you still are to this day. Uh, can we talk about that kind of first area and what you're bringing to the table on that? Yeah, I think um, for me it was kind of like uh, something that uh, was just an – evolutionary process for me to, to, to get to the, the free fall school. Uh, again, that was during that mid nineties, you know, when things were just, you know, it's like hit and miss on what's going on. And it's like, Hey, what, what can I do in a career basis more? And what experiences, what, what can I do in life? And, um, I had a bunch of friends that went up to the free fall committee. Uh, and so I was like, Oh yeah, okay, let's, let's try something different, you know? And, um, it just so happened that we ended up moving to Yuma, Arizona, after I was there for seven months, but, um, I hated teaching up front to a class because, you know, you have like 55 people and my wife still doesn't understand to this day that I was a shy kid in high school and all this stuff. And yes, uh, I got in trouble a lot because I could be a smart ass, but I couldn't, if you tell me I had to do this at this particular time and you know, this oral book report, I don't know how many of those I failed because I was just not that guy. So I learned a little bit more having to stand up in front of people and give a class. Um, but it did start me on the right way with instruction because, you know, free fall is a different animal. I mean, you're literally out there with the guy when, when we were doing it, it wasn't the AFF standard where you're holding on to him and jumping out and all this stuff, even though we went through AFF uh, instructor course, you know, got our civilian rating and everything else. But um, you'd literally just tap the guy and go out and jump with them. So there was a, like anything else we had, you know, uh, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps, and, uh, and Army cadre. So there's competition about everything or everybody makes something about something. And, uh, 
you know, when all you're doing is jumping, that's a, an easy thing for everybody to get hyper-focused on and sit there and critique, you know, each other on, oh, well, you were like, you know, six inches away from your student when you went out and things like that. But so it became, you really wanted to be good at it and you wanted to be respected within your peers. And uh, I think over time, just getting a little bit more of that, because you'd have two students every course and every uh, during the basic course. And then I did some of the jump master course instructor there. But the way I looked at it was I wanted to try and at least teach what I knew and, you know, make sure they understood it and give them the best opportunity that they could to actually be successful with it. So it helped me along the way of being able to within free fall, uh, all the, the progression level we did as instructors, the, the biggest thing was being able to, uh, go out with an instructor and he would act like the student, do all these different things, you get down, you go your separate ways, you pack your parachute, then you make your notes and come back and debrief them. He knew what everything he did in the sky, but you had to recall that, excuse me, and then come back in and give it and tell him everything he did along the way. So for me, that made it a little bit easier, um, you know, my path down the road to for instruction stuff because I could see something, remember it and still recall it um, without taking away from the thing at hand at, at the time, you know, because when you think, especially shooting everything else, there's certain things that might be going on, but then it's like, okay, but then let's go back to this point And what did you do? You know, if you're doing, um, you know, this, this, and this, we wouldn't have had this outcome or you would have had this outcome and your shots and everything else. So that really started making me really being able to recall things and, you know, kind of, um, put things in there so where I could come back and actually critique them and exactly what they did and explain to them why. And then, okay, this is how we correct it. Let's do this. Let's do that. And for me, you know, jumping was always fun. I I'll tell you this, I'm afraid of heights, but um, so don't get me to walk on a obstacle course, 10 feet above the ground, but I don't mind 25,000 feet. Cause I got time. If I fall, you know, I'm not going to hit, <laughs> hit right away <laughs> sooner or later, but yeah. So, uh, Chris, and I want to kind of tag on to this with you when he instructed you guys and kind of helped you guys along are one, are you afraid of heights? I can't remember if we've ever talked about that before me. Yeah. No, no, I'm not, not for jumping. Nothing like that. So no. when they, when they take you in there, because it's, I think it's different for someone who's nervous about doing that and doesn't like jumping and someone that's not, how does how do you remember Chili kind of covering everyone, no matter how they felt? Because I know there were some guys that did not like jumping. Yeah, no. I mean, if you're talk, if you're talking talking free fall or CQB, like I I joined a se a, a very seasoned team, um, and and Chili was my two IC, and then he was my my team leader. But all the like I didn't have a choice. Like I had I had to get better at flying <laughs> because they were all so good. But Chili, you know, it's funny that he says that about, you know, his instructor time and watching things and seeing things and then, you know, being able to recall that and say it. I think that's what he carried into it. So from a free fall standpoint, he would say, you know, hey, try this thing. Um, and a lot of times that was we didn't do tunnel time often, but we did sometimes. And that was when Chili would take the opportunity to say, hey, try this. He would expand on, you know, a guy's skill set. At least he did with me. Um, and it made me a better flyer. And and I I loved it too, like Chili. Like I loved jumping. Um, the Army took all the fun out of static line. So when I finally got to jump free fall, I was like, this is it. Uh, and I actually enjoyed myself. Um, and then I had a team full of really good 
skydivers. So, um, yeah, the, the bar was set pretty high. So I would ask questions and, 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 you know, get solid answers on how to do things better from a training perspective. I think exactly what he said, and some guys do it better than others, but being able to look back on a, on a training run on a hit and go, Hey, in the second room that we entered, you did X, Y, and Z, why? And then have a conversation about it and say, well, next time think about doing this or, Hey, when you were putting the charge on the door, make sure you're paying attention to that. But being able to make those little critiques along the way and recall that stuff is critical to being a good instructor, frankly, in the environments that, uh, that we worked in and then, and that he taught in. So, um, I do have to tell a funny story though, cause Chili actually said he was scared of heights. So <laughs> I didn't know this, right? I didn't know that he had a, a healthy respect for heights. And to me, he was this like, he was this mythical dude, right? That did everything great. He shot great. He could run his ass off. He was a phenomenal skydiver. Like he was just on this pedestal to me. So we were climbing in New Hampshire. Chili, do you remember this? <laughs> and we were, we were ice climbing in the winter and we were two or three pitches up this ice climb and we were standing on this big bulgy you gotta explain what a pitch is oh so you know you have a length of your rope is only so long so you can only climb so far before you basically don't have enough rope to get down off of that wherever you are so you have to redo everything and then lead climb again put in all of your anchor points you know so on and so on and so on so you sort of leapfrog up uh, a face and so we were, we were like a couple pitches up on this ice climb and we were standing on this big bulgy piece of ice and it was probably, it wasn't very big and I'm the opposite of Chile. I'm probably unsafe in that. <laughs> I just, especially back then I'm like, I'm good. Like I got it. Uh, whatever. I'm still here. So, but anyway, we were standing on this bulge of ice and, um, it's beautiful. I turn around and I'm standing there and Chili is facing the the ice wall, like getting ready to do the next climb. And I turn around and I'm looking out and it's this gorgeous like New Hampshire winter and I tap him and I'm like, hey, check this out. And I like not thinking. And again, we're on this tiny little piece of ice and he's like, no, whatever, I'm good. And I tapped him again and he's like, dude, I'm fine. And I tapped him a third. I was like, no, Chili, you got to look at this. And I grabbed him and he went, Get the fuck off me. <laughs> it was like this instant switch. And I was like, whoa. And I didn't know what I did. And then we had a conversation about it. He's like, he's like, I'm afraid of heights. And I was like, how do you do any of the things that you do being afraid of heights? And I'll let you answer. But uh, yeah, I'll let you answer if you remember what you said to me. But. I, I don't remember what I said. I remember when we were out there doing all the climbing and stuff and yeah. And then you and like, then we went to Colorado even that time. And then you and Mikey did a thing and Sean and I did a, a route because Sean and I were more, you know, together <laughs> with it, but it was like, yeah, I, you know, jumping was never an, a thing. Never. I never wor worried about it. I don't know why I just, but I also knew I had to do certain things to, to get along the way. Um, and I wanted to free fall so bad. And, um, you know, my first jump, yeah, instructor taps me, boom, go off a ramp of a C-130. So, I mean, it's like, well, here goes nothing. But, I mean, I at least for me it was I still got to do it. I still got to try. Like Ranger School, my biggest fear wasn't 
all the patrol, all this other stuff, not, not eating, not sleeping. It was the damn obstacle course. Um, and it was going over the steps on the log, you know, that, that was my biggest fear with, with things. Really? And yeah. But I knew I had to do it, but then there's times that I've been like, I'm like, no, this is stupid. Why are we doing this during training? And, and it's, uh, oh, it's just funny laughing at now with stuff, but it's, um, yeah, then we start rolling into combat. It's a different story, but yet we, some of the stuff going across, you know, bridging, you know, between buildings, I was like, well, I wouldn't look down. I'd stay in my nods. That way I can only look right in front of me and I can look at the ladder and things like that. But it was just the willing to do it. Well, you said, you said, I focus intently on what I'm doing and I pay attention and that's it about the climbing piece. And I said, okay, I said, but how do you, like, you were a free fall instructor and you said, you said skydiving is not, the, the height is not relevant. Like it's not real. And it makes sense. Like anybody that's ever jumped static line and then went to free fall training, it's a completely different animal leaving a plane at 10 or 12,000 feet than it is at 800 feet. At 800 feet, you can see the trees going by and people on the ground. And, and it's like, I, if my shoe doesn't open, I'm going to impact that. When you leave at 10,000 feet, it's, it's like looking at a TV screen. Like it's not, it's for me, it's not the same thing. So when you said it, it's not relative, like I understood what you meant at the time, but it was funny. Like, like I laughed, he was mad at me. So I didn't laugh. Out loud. <laughs> I'm going to be honest. I would be super fly pissed at you too. So, <laughs> but, but, but internally I laughed because I was, I was, and frankly, I was really impressed. I was like, God, like to, to get yourself over that over uh, because it's not, my wife is afraid of heights and, and, and we climb mountains and stuff. And I know what that's like for her when we're in situations where she's having that effect and how hard that is to get through. So for me, it, it just, it, it actually, it, it increased the mythology of Chili Palmer. Cause I was like, here's this guy that's admittedly afraid of heights and we're going on climbing trips together, which, uh, yeah, that says a lot about a guy's drive to be the best at what he does. So I guess th that would be a question. Did you ever go ice climbing with him again after that? Yeah, no. Uh, wow. We did, we did. We did a couple of trips together. Uh, he much preferred being yeah. behind the wheel of a car than he did climbing up an ice face, though. <laughs> but I, but I choose the ice over rocks because it just seemed like when you can sink that <laughs> axe in, I would yeah. use so much energy instead of just being smooth. It was wham, you know. But uh. I, yeah, I'd rather ice climb than rock climb because I just felt like I had, you know, a little bit more uh, control of it or at least more contact. <laughs> yeah, but you know, I, it, uh, it's a lesson what? in it's a lesson in dealing with fear like yeah. that. We, we all learned along the way and it's how you function in combat. Anybody that says fear is not there is either a psychopath or the lion. You know, it's it's how you process that and what you do with that information coming in and then how you react to it. So. Yeah, to me, it was just an extension of of how to be successful in the organization is do the right things with those feelings. So I, I want to get into your career with the unit and stuff, but I have a question that actually a listener wrote in and wanted me to ask uh, you and Chris specifically. They said, uh, how many pass the selection marches, but ultimately don't make it through the operator course? And they were just wondering the overall kind of pass fail rate. That's hard to really put an honest answer to that just because of not ever being in charge of that piece. 
Um, but there's a handful of guys that, you know, will, you know, make everything with selection, but then get there to, to brag and, you know, whether or not get dropped along the way. But I mean, I've seen it all the way to the end where guys get dropped, um, you know, even though they've, they think they've done everything su- successfully, they still get to the end gate and they just, you know, uh, they didn't, they didn't make that mark. Um, and it's, and it's not a, you know, bashing anybody in particular or anything like that. It's just, there's a certain, you know, thing that they're looking for and certain things that are, um, that are needed, especially then as we got involved after nine 11, you know, there's a lot more coming into it. Granted, a lot of guys come in with some sort of experience, you know, it seems like these, these days or early on they did when I was still there, but it's, it's hard to say, yeah, exact numbers with things um, because it's, excuse me, it's uh, so trimmed down from, you know, the, the, the group that's going to selection to the guys that are selected to come to course to the course and then uh, to go across the hall. I mean, I think they said it was what 19% or something like that. I can't remember what, uh, what they said from those initially going to that class selection class about 19% actually, you know, are successful out of that. Chris, you have anything you want to add in? No, I mean, Chile would know better than me. Um, having spent time as an S and instructor, I, it's a, it's not a very big number. Uh, I, you know, I'll say to Chili's point, like the, those requirements, those statistics, um, and those decision points are probably one of the best kept secrets in the military. Um, it's a very select few folks that are privy to any selection related information, um, in terms of candidates. Um, but yeah, I think the percentages are correct that Chile said, uh, the only point that I would make is that there's, there's so many gates along the way. So you apply to assess. Um, so there's a screening process that happens before you even attend selection. Um, so they know what they're looking for. Um, and they also know, in my personal opinion, they know based on a certain set of parameters, who has the aptitude to succeed. Um, and so they've dialed that in so good over the years that, that, you know, they get, they get pretty, pretty consistent numbers, um, with who they allow to assess and then who comes out at the end of it. The thing they, I think they can't predict is, you know, when it gets more complex, how a guy is going to deal with that. Um, there's only so much psychological evaluation you can do when you overwhelm a guy with events. Um, some people can deal with it and some people can't. All right, so let's move to C Squadron. Uh, first off, I want to give you the opportunity, since Chris teased you, Chili, is there any <laughs> stories that you would like to tell about Chris coming over to C Squad? You know, I mean, there's there's so much because, of course, he came into this thing when, you know, post 9-11, and literally when we were on our first deployment. So it was drinking through a fire hose for Chris because it was not just being successful and getting it across the hall, but now he's going to an element that's already deployed as well. Um, and like he brought up earlier, you know, we tried to, you know, get him and make it an integral part of the team. Cause we're all a team now. I mean, this is our guy. This is, this is who's on our team and this is what we go with and how do we make ourselves successful, not an individual. Um, you know, I, we all have so I can't think of anything that stands out for everything with Chris. Chris always just though 
had fun. You know what I mean? Um, I can believe that. But he did. <laughs> now, since Listen. he gave me that big old, you know, fist bump, yeah. he did get pissy <laughs> times when he when he got in trouble. Um, but it was like when we were during the invasion and stuff, and you were getting mad because I'm like, "Hey, you're on, you're you're going out on RNS with uh, I forget whoever it was." And you're like, "What? What the hell? Why I got to do?" That? It's like, Brad, go talk to your boy. <laughs> But I mean, you know, hey, we're oh, this is a good one. This I like this one. Okay. You know, so we're, you know, driving around the desert for quite a few days, you know. I mean, our only shower was we had that uh no rinse shampoo, whatever you put it on, towel dry, things like that. And then baby wipes was our best friend. Uh Chris's feet stunk so bad. I was on the other <laughs> side of the vehicle when we were during a day. At a rod site with rest over day, and he had his boots off and everything. He's like, "Dude, you got to put them back on. Put you got to put your boots back on because this is just not going anywhere." Um, what What do you mean they don't stink, dude? They they freaking stink. You got to put your your boots back on. So I mean, he did have some rank feet there in the invasion. I'll give you that. Okay. Do you agree, Chris? I, yeah, I I I wore <laughs> a leather boots and and yeah, we didn't shower and. You know, I'm, I'm probably if I'm if I'm truthful, I was probably scared half the time. So I'm sweating or I'm freezing, I, and yeah, my feet were so funky that um, they wouldn't let me take my boots off. <laughs> Which I'm guessing probably made it worse. <laughs> yeah, no, it did until we finally got a shower at Grizzly. But no, I but I, I'll bail him out. Chili, I think Chili almost fired me at least three times during the tenure that I worked for him. Um, and in almost every circumstance, well, in all of those circumstances, it was my fault. It was something that I did. Uh, and it's lessons that you learn along the way as, as a young soldier. Uh, the, the one that he spoke about, like during the invasion, when he said, I need you to go do this. I did. I don't know what I was thinking. I was exhausted and we were probably hungry. So I had a little hanger and I think we'd been up for like 24 hours. Driving all um, night. And the thing that I forgot, he said, I'm going to need you to go do this. And we had just pulled into a rest over day site during the invasion. And I was exhausted. Like I'd been driving all night and I forgot that like Chili never slept either. Like he was the TC. He was sitting next to me running the flare ball all night, every single night. And, you know, whatever we were doing, the two of us were always up. I won't say that for the rest of the guys. They were all always awake. <laughs> I know somebody that was in his sleeping bag in the turret. Yeah, I'm pretty sure Mikey could sleep on the gun, but whatever. That's another story. But yeah, and 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 I I I I chipped back, and he did to his credit. He I think he knew it was a really uncomfortable situation, and we were both really tired. And rather than deal with it he looked at another guy on the team and said, you need to pull him aside and have a conversation. And, and Brad did. And I went up and did what I needed to do. And it was fine after that. <laughs> but, but yeah, we had a few. Uh, and I, like I said, all silly mistakes that I made as a young guy thinking I knew what I was doing. Um, but he always gave me, he always gave me his reasons why. He, he always treated me like a professional. And he always told me why it, it wasn't, why what I did wasn't correct. And I appreciated that. And I, I think I told Chili years later, you know, like we had our moments, but we, we, where we are now in our relationship is a reflection of, of growth as people um, and life experience. And, a, and, a, and I'm grateful for all of it. 
<clears throat> yeah, I mean, you think about things, though, too. First, put it saying I almost fired him three times. No, I mean, we all <laughs> we all go through our ups and downs. Even as leaders, you know, there's things that you could do better all along the way. Um, but I think, like Chris saying, a test of time, I, I, I think – you know, and you look at it today, like my my father passed in February and in April, we had a celebration of life back in Phoenix. Well, you know, Chris and his wife came, you know, because they met my parents uh, a few times before that. They went over and had dinner with them because that's the way my parents were. They always wanted to, you know, be the welcoming piece. So, again, yeah, we, you know, here we are, you know, years later with everything else, totally separate you know, careers after the military, but we still always kind of linked up with all the trade shows and it was almost like a reunion at, at a lot of them. But um, like I say, just, you know, him and his, his wife being there also to support, you know, everything for my father. And then that just shows you the type of character he is and everything else too. So, I mean, um, you don't, you don't ha like to hang out when we get older with people that are douchebags. <laughs> <laughs> wise words to live by <laughs> all right so i have a true or false question for you chili true or false there was a suntan competition while you were overseas <laughs> and part two of that question where did you go to tan yourself all right so there was kind of a little thing and brad thomas was our pool boy because that guy lived to keep that pool clean. And I, I mean, Brad would be up before guys, everybody else. And it wasn't to do PT, but it was to go clean the pool. And he just loved the, the cleaning the pool. So I think Brad pretty much won that thing. He got pretty dark that, I mean, he was, yeah, probably the darkest we've all been within that. But we'd sit there on little floaties and stuff inside that pool, um, you know, Grown men after coming back from a run, going in there and uh, floating around on uh, who knows what floaties we had, and um, everybody's sitting there rolling up their <clears throat> ranger panties to to get some good tan lines going. But that was all in Baghdad, right there, yeah, in what oh three oh four time frame. Did you ever tan on top of a Connex? Oh yeah, that was that was a lot of that was Afghanistan. You know, a lot of there. <laughs> I mean, you had, you know, the, the Tiva tan on from Afghanistan. So, I mean, coming back and like, I remember, I think my brother was like, who has a tan lines on their feet? You know, <laughs> I mean, it's just, yeah, one of those things you did when you had time, right? Why not enjoy it? Headphones. DJ, have, you, have you ever seen the reenlistment photo? Uh, actually, yeah, uh, I have it. So let me, <laughs> let me pull that up real quick. Oh, uh, see, that's, <laughs> that's the best ever. <laughs> yeah. So what had happened here was I knew I was reenlisting. It was going to put me in the in-def, uh, you know, so my last time to enlist and do anything. And um, I it was actually my birthday, July 10th. And I was I told everybody, bring bring your Hawaiian shirts. That's we're going to do it. in. I'm going to do it in a Hawaiian shirt. And uh, so we did it on the Hescos there in Bagram Air Base in uh, 2002, July 10th, 2002. So it was uh, it was funny because it was also near the end of our deployment. We redeployed, I think, if within a week later and all that stuff. So it was uh, just kind of like just being a goofball again, you know, just relaxing and not worrying about where we're at and what we're doing, but just having fun with what the moment was. 
Do you remember anything particular about this day? First to you, Chili, and second to you, Chris. Nothing other than just doing that and just everybody just chilling out and having fun. And it was like everybody wanted to be a part of it within our troop. So, I mean, uh, and uh, John Brennan, who was a uh, major at the time, you know, and now yeah. he's made his way up to general officer and stuff. Um, you know, he's uh, he was the one that reenlisted me on the Haskos. So it was pretty, pretty fun. And uh, I think it was just, it was like a goofy section because then everybody else all around, you got the Rangers, everybody else just looking at us like, what are these idiots doing? You know, but it was, I think about enjoying the moment, you know, you're deployed, you know, you're doing something kind of unique, you know, you're reenlisting on your birthday, things like that. And it's like, well, let's have fun with it. Chris. Uh, yeah, for me, it was really neat. Um, again, I was a brand new guy. I had just literally joined the Delta force in combat and this was my team and, and, and my two, I see at the time chose to reenlist and chose to do it that way. Um, it was a bit of a moment of unity in, in my own case, I didn't know this was going to go down and I didn't know they did Hawaiian shirt Fridays. Um, so luckily <laughs> for me, I think it was Glenn Griggs that gave me that shirt. Chili, um, a guy, so. a guy, a guy lent me a Hawaiian shirt so that I could look like everybody else, which was really cool, um, and 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 made me feel like I was a part of the team. Um, so, uh, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Uh, we might have had a drink or two that night as well. <laughs> you know, I I think it was Rippets. And maybe, maybe. <laughs> but you look, you look. Chris so had gross. you know some nice hair there. Right, he had I some did. really stylish hair going he, on there. You know what? I I really think that Chris in this picture looks like he's an extra in Magnum PI. Hey, you know, <laughs> honestly, when I got to Afghanistan and they were tanning on the contact on the Connexes, I was like, I'm gonna fit right in. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so I want to ask you, Chili, in going through these pictures, and I said it to Chris before, I noticed there's a lot of shirtless pictures. Um, I'm just wondering, is there a, a reason for that? Is there, uh, you know, I'm just trying to figure it out. Well, I mean, besides just being cool guys, you know, um, <laughs> it's like, I I don't know. We're just idiots because it's like, yeah, we're here, right? Whatever. Yeah, let me take my shirt off because I'm going to get some more sun while I'm doing this. Oh, I'm going to shoot an AT4. Okay, sure. Let me keep my shirt off. You know, I mean, it's. I don't know. We're just idiots and we're just living in the moment. And at that time it was kind of um, also a, a lot of the pictures with our shirts off. Actually, we were in it just got there after the Rangers established a sauna bad in Afghanistan. And so we're doing um, that was in coast. We didn't have laundry. So it was like, how do you save your T-shirt? Well, you just don't wear it. <laughs> um, but that was uh, yeah. In at a sauna bad, we were washing our laundry in buckets. You know, so it was like, well, how can I not wash something? Well, I just don't wear it. Okay. It was a hot, <laughs> and it and it was 120 degrees outside. We were putting do you in ABAD, we were putting water bottles in wet socks and hanging them up because of whatever the physics of that actually cools the water bottle enough that you can drink it, that it wasn't boiling water. Like it was just hot. Well, that would be another question though. With your shirt off, wouldn't you get sunburned? I mean, with it being 140 degrees, and it's like, I mean, if you look at the ground, you look like you're on the surface of the sun right there. 
<laughs> I That's think why you know, need a base tan. <laughs> <laughs> I think in our head we were, you know, um, nothing was going to phase us. We're invincible. And the base tan works. <laughs> Let, let's talk about that because I want to take kind of a serious approach to that when you say that. Uh, we we thought we were invincible. Now, of course, I know what you're saying there, but I want to talk about your mentality. You spent 13 combat rotations, 17 years in the unit. It's got to take its toll on you. And I want to talk about, I want to kind of compare them, and then I want to hear your thoughts of mental state and physical state. I want to know the difference in Panama, Afghanistan, Iraq, and as you progress through your career, how not only your mind state changes, but how does your physical body hold up to that? Because that is a lot of pounding on a body and a tremendous amount of pounding on a brain. Um, I think early on when you look at like Panama and stuff like that, you know, nobody cared if you were hurt. If you were hurt and you, you had to drive through, you had to do everything, you know, you know, complete the range remission. Um, you know, it was all about just doing what you did because again, we, we weren't in a combat thing. We we're garrison. So what, what makes somebody tough? Oh man, look at that. Yeah. He, he just ate shit on this jump, but the, look at, he's still doing the 12 mile March, you know, and all this stuff. So, um, nobody really cared about the after effects. Everybody's like, yeah, whatever, whatever, whatever. Um, so mindset is you're just still young charging hard. And to me, where I say like the invincibility, um, you know, excuse me, growing up as a 1970 kid. Um, and then, you know, really the, you know, Vietnam war really officially ended there in 73, you know? So for me, it was, wow, that's something that went on. Am I ever going to get that chance to be involved in, you know, something like this? And I watched a lot of documentaries, a lot of things, and actually read a couple books probably about, you know, different elements within Vietnam but uh i can't say i really read many books nowadays because uh you know i need pictures but um with that <laughs> there one statement was a guy said you had to think you were invincible because if you felt like you or thought that you're gonna get hurt you're gonna get this that you just it people break down people lose it mentally from that so you have to have this feeling of invincibility not saying that you're the you know the jolly green giant out there with machine guns like they say in full metal jacket doing everything but that's kind of like you know the analogy of really putting that saying invincibility just putting it to something else and um so i think having all that was it was a huge thing because you you know the consequences are severe like i remember having to talk with brad thomas before when we first started uh off to afghanistan and stuff like that was um you know hey if anything happens to me and it's like yeah yeah, yeah. You, you know you, you stop each other short hey you don't have to say anything yep we got it yep got it you know because i was i was divorced so i had my son um uh he was living with his mom everything else so it was a different thing so it was still though we had kids we had family and it's we wanted to be there for each other for that but you didn't have to say it you know um so again you know, that invincibility type thing to where, you know, we're out there, we know we're doing the mission, but we know that our brothers are going to take care of us and take care of those things that uh, are dear to us if we're not there. Um, so I was in my best shape then too in my 30s, you know, so for me, it was these combat deployments, you know, I start Afghanistan, I turned 32 there when I did that reenlistment. Um, 
but I was in my best shape in my thirties. Um, I don't know if it's because we had a lot of good time to work out as well, because I mean, you think about it, all right, okay, we're deployed. So we're doing our meetings, we're doing our team leader stuff, things like that when I was team leader and everything. But then, you know, it was Jim, Chow, and what are we doing tonight? You know, so it was pretty easy. And um, it was one of those things that you come home and being home, especially when you had kids, was harder. And then you got to pay this bill. You got to do this. You got to do that. So, um, you know, with with spouses and everything else, they're dealing with it, the day-to-day life. We're away from it, you know. So um, I was in some of the best shape, like I said, during that, that, that course. And um, I think, though, you get tired over the course of a period of running hard like that because, again, first you have to have the mental state to where – you know, I'm not going to fail. I'm not going to let my buddies down and, you know, nothing's going to happen and I'm going to prevent that from happening to anybody else. Um, and you should have, would have, could have a lot of things that go along that were something is catastrophic. And so guys need breaks. And early on we were so, we looked at somebody, if they said, Hey, I need a break or I need a cup, this or that. Oh, they're weak. They're weak. Cause we just didn't understand it because we didn't, you know, we were a new, element combat element into this now prolonged engagement that it was and then turn of course into you know years of of uh being engaged in this war um so it over the course of time your body starts to hit hard and then of course the mental state and i think you know guys just need breaks and and then as a leader you need to recognize that as well you need to start being able to to assess you know the guys whether or not you know of course, anger is always one guys that have become short tempered, this, that. And I know I did. I know I did. But I look, I can look back at it now and see some of that. And but people above me, you know, said, yet yeah, Chile just needs a break. So, you know, OK, hey, let's send him to S&T now um, versus another six months and things like that as far as being in a team leader position and everything else. And so I think uh, it does kind of build up along the way. Afghanistan was like really um you know still the gung-ho side of of everything for us the invasion early on baghdad it was a wild west we're running and gunning but then you start losing some of your friends and teammates whether or not you're there or not it still starts now weighing on people and causing other things like my biggest regrets are not the things i've done but the things i didn't do that i wish i was there for some of these things so that i don't lose sleep you know over again things i've done it's that i didn't do and missing a deployment because then I went to S and T and now I'm out of the rotation. I'm out of this. And, um, so it weighs on you the, that mental side there. And I think it goes along the way, but then I think it turned, we went back to Afghanistan, things shifted a little bit better to where we, as you know, a military started recognizing some of these things and dealing with them, uh, and actually helping, you know, guys along the way and giving them breaks, getting them better. Okay, this is how we work out. This is why you do this exercise. This is this helps with this, you know, started really getting into the um, understanding of the whole, uh, the complexity of really working out, being in shape, lifting, whether or not you're doing the CrossFit or doing just regular uh, standard weightlifting, running, everything else, you know, there's, you can do things, but some stuff tears you down, but how do we do it right? And how do we keep 
guys healthy so that the body became a piece that we needed to keep people healthy but then also the mind because you know again you just need to recognize when people needed a break and i think that shift when we went back in the later years um you know uh oh nine ten eleven twelve I think we had a better understanding. And so things kind of shifted back to where, hey, this is now a prolonged environment that we're in. This is our day to day. This is not a garrison and all of a sudden, oh, we're in a, a spike here and we're back down and flatlined for a bit. You know, we're in this constant, you know, high threat situation and everything else. So um, it got better along the way. And I think it's a lot better nowadays, even, even after we've kind of withdrawn and done some things where we're not doing the prolonged engagements and we're doing more defined tasks and everything else. But I think there's a better understanding for, for how to manage people. Here's the question that comes up to my mind though. When you say it's not the things you did, it's the things you didn't do. And you say things like I wasn't on that deployment. I did this, I did that. Right before saying you knew that you needed a break or someone knew that you needed a break. So I'm trying to figure out how you rationalize or how you put that thought in your head, because it seems almost like an irrational thought. Of course, you're not there. You have to take a break. You have to step away from it. So I'm, I'm wondering how you rationalize it in your brain and how you come to work through it and get to the other side of it. I kind of look at it as like a professional athlete, let's say football in the NFL, right? Uh, because we're at, we're at that pro level where we were at. Um, think about this guy's playing, he's first string, first string, all of a sudden now he's in the practice squad, but he's there because of reasons, maybe getting back, getting healthy, things like that. But he doesn't get to go to the Super Bowl, <laughs> doesn't get to go with what they're doing. And then you want to get back to it. So it's the selfishness of wanting to be get back to it, but also wanting to be there for your brothers. Cause you feel, even though, yes, you needed a break, but then, you know, is it like you question, you know, why did I do that then? Why couldn't I wait six months? Why couldn't I push back? Why couldn't have I done this? Um, I think it's just that the brotherhood and just the, the, the shared experiences that we've gone through and the, the fact that you're with somebody, you know, so many close knit guys day in, day out when you're deployed and you're doing things that are, uh, you know, dangerous. And, you know, there's no drug out there that will ever give you the high that combat does. Um, I mean, that's something that is just you, unless you've ever been there in a two way gunfight, you'll never be able to explain to somebody that feeling. But like Chris said earlier, fear is a part of that, but it's about understanding fear and thinking through fear. But I think it's that selfishness of the brotherhood of wanting to be there and because you think you could have changed something. But again, if, if I was there, maybe that would have happened to me or it never would have happened at all, but another day would have been catastrophic. So I think it's just wanting to be there for your brothers. Chris, you want to add on to that? Cause I would love to hear, we've talked about this, you and I a bunch of times, but I would like to hear kind of your response to that. Um, yeah, I mean, I agree with Chili. It, it was the things I didn't do or the things that I wasn't there for that really stuck with me over the years and probably give me the most trouble. Um, yeah, I mean, I've talked about it before, but, you know, I missed a rotation in 05, just like Chili's talking about to go to the Q course. And nobody had a problem with me going to the Q course. Everybody agreed, like, there's no good time, just go do it. Um, and it was about advanced army training, whatever. And I went and did it. And that was one of the worst rotations that 
that we had in a while. And one of the guys that was killed when I did that was, was, um, Steve Langnack and Steve was breaching because I wasn't there. Um, and I carried that for a lot of years. I, I barely even knew Steve, like we never worked together, but that that's, that's something that haunted me for a long time. Mike, Mike and Mike McNulty and Bob Horgan were killed that rotation. I wasn't there. I know logically that whether I was there or not, it probably wouldn't have made any difference at all, but that's what your brain does to you. And then, so I, I totally identify with that. I think a lot of guys do. The second thing is, is I think over time, it, it's psychological. I think your brain does the exact opposite thing of what it should when you work at at a high level like that. When when you are used to the adrenaline spike of combat, the highs and the lows, um, and that is basically mentally that's your caffeine that you need over time. And like Chili alluded to earlier, you know, being deployed and at war, as silly as it sounds, it actually gets to be easier than being at home as time goes by. So on the one hand, what you absolutely need to do is look at yourself and go, wow, I'm experiencing combat fatigue and I probably need a break. And your brain does the exact opposite. It goes, screw everything else. The only place that I feel normal is at war. I need to get back to that. And, and that's, a, that's, a, that's an issue. That's something that I think we're still trying to understand to this day. Um, I think they, they know a lot more than they did years ago. Um, but yeah, I mean, so we started with a bunch of type A's that just wanted to be the best at whatever it is that they were doing and continue to, to achieve greater and greater and do everything that they were capable of. And then you get there and then you live on that cycle. Um, and then when you should be backing it down and taking a break so that you can extend the amount of time that you can live that life, um, your brain actually does the opposite. Like it won't let you walk away from it. It just wants to get back there and it punishes you when you're not. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a tough thing, man. And, and it's, I've said in the past, like, I don't blame the organization. I don't, it is what it is. You need people to do those things and it takes years to get guys to the level to be able to do those things. Um, so it's a tough balancing act of, of how do you pull guys away, but still maintain that level of expertise and effectiveness, uh, in those extremely intense situations. I, I, I always think, and I've told you before, Chris, I always think it's interesting when people say, I don't blame the organization or I don't blame who's ever in charge or however you want to put it. But I, I, I've always thought it was funny, and this is in law enforcement, first responder, and military. They talk about mental health a lot and they talk about fixing it, and it's become a huge buzzword, especially recently in law enforcement and stuff with all the riots and everything like that. But it's always funny to me that nothing ever seems to change from the command or from the organization. The op tempo stays the same. They don't really make any sacrifices to make sure that that officer is better. They use a lot of buzzwords and stuff. And, and by no means am I speaking from you guys' point of view. I'm speaking strictly from a law enforcement point of view. Do you think it's the same way? Because I think it is at a certain point, some of the blame has to go on the organization. I, I look at, I, I don't so much, well, the organization, what happens there, I think is the, the leaders that are mentored and then moved up don't learn and don't push the things that they've learned when they were back there in the trenches. 
you know, and we get caught up into the, the political side of things. Um, so I think it, it becomes a fault of that person versus the, the, the true organization, Okay, you know, because the organization is there for a purpose and we know what that purpose is. We have a mission statement, we have a charter, we have things that are there, but it's, it's the, the failure of leadership. I, to me, those people, I, are I, I understand up. now it, it, it's a machine, not the cog. Yes. Okay. That's so, a really good way to put it. <laughs> I've been looking for a way to say that for a long time. So thanks for that. Chili. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so let's talk a, a little more about that. So Chili, I've heard you say in another interview that the family is the most important thing that you need to prepare plan. Uh, I, I don't know the quote exactly that you said, but you, you talked about it. It was like a week challenge and, and things like that. At what point in your career do you figure that out? Is it from the very beginning? Is it at the end? Is it in the middle? Where do you come across that idea and you go, because I don't think a lot of people think about that kind of stuff. Um, I think for me, you know, I, I got divorced, uh, from my son's mom, uh, basically there in O2. Um, and excuse me, but I met my, my wife now. Um, we've been together since well, we got married in 2010. Um, and we were dating back in from O six. So, she actually went through a lot more with me than anything. And, uh, you know, as a, just a girlfriend stood by me with so much stuff and then was there, we weren't even engaged yet when I went after uh, custody of my son and had to step out of, uh, taking a leader leadership position. And, you know, so she went through the highs and lows and that really was a big, big low for me, even though I knew I was doing the right thing, uh, getting custody of my son, I was, not with my guys deployed. I was not with the element that I should have been and everything else. So um, she really helped me a lot with all that. Granted, she dealt with a lot of a lot of my shit because I was just paying the ass with a lot of that stuff going along the way. And I think um, when I finally then I went back to uh, the operational side after a few years, um, just from having custody of him and things being really set in stone and, and things being good with all of us. Um, I saw it then, and that was like in 2010, 2011, you know, more because just how much that, you know, your family is there and needs to be there. And what really helped too is, you know, my wife is, like I said, is, is awesome and has done so much stuff, you know, to, to keep me on the, <laughs> the right path. And I've given her a lot of business along the way, which, you know, should have never, but again, we all learn. And I think a lot of what, what it comes from is some of that, um, you know, stuff we experience as a brotherhood. We, we still think our brothers are just our only piece, but we have to, our family has to be a part of that as well. And we have to really show the importance. But one of the chaplains said a, a key thing. He said, look, he said, at one point you're going to retire and you're going to be gone but you better hope your family's still there because that's, what's going to carry on forward. You know, we all will leave the unit. We all will retire. It doesn't matter what you're doing. You're doing 20, 25, 30 years along the way, you know, you, you need your family. And, um, so, you know, my wife just being, you know, so the good person she is, um, has helped me realize that a lot. And, um, I think just putting priority back to the family, so the whole time you're, you got 17 years with the unit, 
always in C squadron or do you move around? Because I know we've talked about a couple things. And then if you did move around, I want to talk about the differences between C squadron, which in everything I've heard from everyone we've talked to is a family. I mean, in a very close knit family to what you maybe moved to. Yeah. Um, for me, it was different because of being, uh, like I say, stepping out, going after custody of my son. Then I went to, uh, our research and development section for a good bit. And then I, when I went back, I went back as an ops sergeant major. I went to B squadron for a year and it was a little different because at that time, um, they were more compartmentalized even really within the squadron. And it was a little different, you know, um, coming from C where somebody would have a, uh, they'd have a party and it was a squadron party. Everybody would be there. I mean, it was, everybody enjoyed to be around each other. Um, like anything else, you know, you got your own, sometimes your personality conflicts with a couple people here and there, but as a whole, um, everybody really supported, you know, the unity of the squadron itself. Uh, so, so B was a little different, more standoffish, clickish, like I said at that time. But again, that was just different flavors, different things. Um, but all across the way within the support side of the, the unit to where, you know, being in the research development, things of that, and then being um, cadre there, you know, you, you, you still take the unit as a whole. And what's good though with that is it opens up your eyes a little bit more to, because now you're with guys from other squadrons and now you're seeing a little bit different things and different spins on some of the stuff. And it's, you can, you know, you still develop good friendships with some of the guys in the other squadrons. Um, it's kind of like, uh, you know, sometimes you get too much of a group of somebody together. Like you, you know, think of high school, the jocks get together, they become one mentality, a group mentality versus individual. And then it's like those guys, you know, they all suck. Um, but then you go over as an individual, to a different entity coming from the jock side. Well, then you're cool and everything else and people get along with you, this, that, the other, because you're just being who you are instead of trying to be this group mentality. So um, I think that's what kind of neat when you're go into some of the other positions where, you know, you're getting more guys from around the unit. Um, and I think a key thing for me was just, you know, treat people with respect no matter what they do, because everybody's there to do a job, be proud of what job you're doing and, and do that because, we couldn't do half the stuff we wanted to do if we didn't have the the support structure we had with with all the different en entities that supported us i mean per there's probably three times the amount of support guys per the operational wing the operational arm um but you know again we couldn't do our job without them and um when i first got to the unit back in the 90s b squadron was kind of notorious for uh <laughs> not really caring about support guys. Okay. That's a, that's a good way to uh, describe it. Um, I think that that's lost a lot in today that, that everybody kind of has a job to do and that um, without all those moving parts, the, the machine can't move forward. Like we've talked about so many times tonight. Now I want to show a couple pictures and I just want to see if you guys Remember what was going on in this picture or going on in that day. So let me uh, move to this. And if you guys can, once again, Chili doesn't have a shirt on. Yeah, but see, we go from no shirt to tank top to full shirt because you just have to have the full spectrum. It's kind of like a rainbow. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, this was out in Asadabad, and we were actually 
doing a little range day with the Rangers and, um, we were just shooting everything and just having a little bit of fun. And, um, you know, you, you got to get your tan when you can, you know, sun's out, guns out. I mean, not that they were pretty big guns there. Neither Mike and I were really flashing that, but, uh, you know, you, you gotta be proud with what you brought to the playground. Um, but yeah, it was just a fun range day with the Rangers. Um, cause you know, you had a lot of young guys, you know, here you got again, talking about like when I was in Panama and 18, 19 year olds, things like that, you got 18, 19, 20 year old privates and stuff and, you know, junior leaders. And if you can just get a little bit to talk to them and to just go over things and, you know, just try to, you know, teach them something, you know, like what, what I say with every course that I do with the shooting side is if I can give somebody one thing that makes them a better shooter, then I'm successful. It doesn't need to be something huge. It could be how they're, they have their finger on the trigger, um, you know, can make a difference in how they're shooting their, their groups at 25 yards with a pistol. So if you can do one little thing, you know, and change somebody's life or make them a better person, better shooter, better, whatever, then that's what you're doing. And that's what this day was. So it was kind of a fun day, uh, but it was out in Asadabad in Afghanistan in 02. It was probably around July 4th or 5th, somewhere in that that time frame before we went back to Bagram. Yeah, it was definitely close to July 4th because remember they roasted that goat and the ranger kid said, my dad's a butcher, I can do it. And then it was full of bones and disgusting. <laughs> well, the Afghans got a hold of it before he did. <laughs> this was up uh, at the Pakistani border out of Asadabad. We drove up there. Um, yeah, and we just, yeah, I remember we took that picture, nice grainy camera back then. You know, you think that was a cool picture or, I mean, uh, it was probably like five megapixels. But, it probably was. Yeah. And that was with, uh, with RRD as well. Yeah. Yeah. So that was pretty neat. And that was just, uh, I forget where everybody else was because it was me and you, but I don't, oh, that's because we took the four wheelers up top. We left the, the Humvees. And so I think Brad and Mike and them were down there with them because of the trail going up to that border position. Yeah, I don't remember. I was probably so happy just to be riding around on an ATV in Afghanistan. How cool I am. <laughs> um, this was then in, uh, I'd say this was 04, the summer of 04 in um, Baghdad. Probably yeah. either just got back or getting ready to, to go on with Little Birds because we did a lot of roof landings. Uh, being the climbing team and, you know, the guys afraid of heights over here, um, we did a lot of uh, roof landings. So this is probably actually getting ready to go out on a hit, but it was uh, Baghdad. Yeah. With, when we did the t-shirts like that, it was, I think it was that summer of 04. Yeah. I always refer to this as the Baghdad SWAT days. Um, and, or <laughs> the other one I've said is yeah. we did a lot of commando shit in that stretch. Uh <laughs> Yeah, you know, Iraq, Iraq went through a lot of evolutions, but at that particular time, we were doing a lot of land on the X Hilo stuff um, in the city, and it was pretty wild. Yeah, here's an actual picture that you posted that talked about 04 Baghdad SWAT. Anything that stands out from that deployment? Um, it was, you know, we did uh, some partnership with, uh, or not part, but we had some cross pollinization with. We had some guys uh, with the guys out of Virginia beach and then some of their guys were with us. So it was kind of, um, 
you know, educational on both sides. Um, we learned really quickly that in Afghanistan at that point, nothing was going on because Mikey was over there and they put their highlight reel that they put at the end of their deployment was put to the theme music from Sanford and Son. So <laughs> there wasn't a lot going on for them there at that time, uh, but they still owned it. They maintain it and they did things. And then, you know, they, they evolved up to, you know, the bin Laden raid. So uh, a lot of great things coming out of sometimes stagnant times and boring times. Um, so this was just kind of a very, I think a busy deployment for all of us and a learning piece with a lot of things that went along. And this is when we started seeing a little bit different, uh, I'd say some of the tactics of the, the fighters. We weren't just with young jihadists coming over that get their passports, you know, they get they lose their passport when they come over. They all get track suits and things like that. You know, you started having a little bit more um, foreign fighters coming in, so it it started evolving a little bit in that realm. Because again, you know, we're, we're over there for so long, the enemy is going to evolve as well, just like we have to. And so um, this, I think, was kind of that that point where it started changing on the battlefield a little bit. We looking at it now, we could see that again, based off everything. But at that time we didn't know anything, uh, in your career that really stood out to you. Um, anything you wish you would have done or anything that you wish you maybe would have done differently. I mean, I always wish I would have spent my entire career in the one place, but, uh, you know, you got to evolve somewhere. You got to learn, you got to be, become, um, a little bit experienced to be in a situation like that, or be able to be in a, a, a place that is demanding, you know, very high standards of you. Um, but I, I mean, for me, I just wish I never missed a deployment. You know, I mean, I, and like we talked about, like, you know, Chris having to go to the Q course, things like that. And then I went to, you know, S and T early, things like that. Um, you just never want to leave. Cause that was like, I was hoping that I could bank my whole time in, in one spot there and be there in C squadron. And, and, you know, especially when we started running and gunning like that, where we were over in, in Baghdad and everything else. I mean, you, you still love the guys, no matter how much sometimes you're hurting on one side or the other, or they're hurting, but you still, you come back, like I say, you know, as we get older, we don't want to hang around douchebags when we're older. We, you want to be with people like-minded that you get along with and that you can still have a drink with and BS and, and talk old stories and make fun of each other. So um, I think it's just, ne I wish I never missed a deployment. Okay. Um, when you do actually retire, when you step away from that life, of course, we've talked about that you go to SIG, you work at VTAC as a trainer, but when you step away, this is where a lot of guys um, kind of get off the tracks. Um, and it happens in law enforcement, first responder too. But this is where they get off track because they lose that sense of purpose. They lose that focus that they had. Does any of that ever happen to you when you step away? Um, for me, it, it did in a way just because it just you wish you were back with everything going on. Um, but for me also learning from some of the guys ahead of me was it was at the time it was good for me to move up to Northern Virginia right away. Instead of being somewhere I was at for 17 years and always driving the same route to work yeah, and now all of a right. sudden not being able to go there. And yeah. it's like I was just here. It's like 
and now what am I? I'm not a part of anything. You feel, excuse me, you have to regain that self-worth in a, in a way and understand now how to steer your life in that direction. Um, so for me, getting away right away, I think going up to Northern Virginia um, and going to work for a very small drone company out of Norway, it was like being in another team room again. And so it gave me that, you know, to where we we could hard you know, charge hard at things, get everything going, you know, trying to build up everything. You're still going out there meeting all the guys and showing them something that, you know, you believe in. Um, and I hated, I wasn't a salesman. The way I looked at it was I'm going to show you something. And if you don't like it, then, you know, tell me, I'm not going to force something down your throat with things because I was that guy as well. Um, but here's a capability that I believe in. And, you know, if, if you think there's, you know, positive side for it, for you guys, then, then let's do that. And sometimes I'd steer guys that are like, well, this is what we really want. And I'm like, well, then you need to go look at that system because that system over there will do what you're, you're asking. We, we can't do that with our system. Um, so again, that, you know, being honest in the humility side of things, um, and just being direct and owning what you're saying to people. But for me, it was getting away. Um, again, I still, you know, you still wish you're part of things, but it's yeah, just finding now that, okay, this is like what the chaplain said, you know, at one point you're going to retire, you're going to leave, you know, where's your family and, you know, understand that, that side of it. Any problems with any of the thing that a lot of guys do, any problem with pain medication, with alcohol, with any, where you're really in a dark place, anything like that? Did you go through any of that stepping away? No, luckily I didn't. I think again, too, for what I did and went right into uh, working with the drone company and things, and then being up in a new area in Northern Virginia, new things going on. Um, and I was traveling, you know, quite a bit. Um, so it was, uh, it was good for me in that realm. Um, so never really a, a dark place. And I know guys have gone there and some guys still go there uh, with alcohol and everything right now. And it, and it's, you try to talk to them and it's like, you talk to them when they're, they actually text you, Hey, I need help. I need help. What I'm, this is, you know, I'm in a bad place. You call them. Oh no, no, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. And it's like, no, look, look, we can help you. Have you thought about this? I thought about that. No, 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 I'm not doing anything. How can you all this? And then the next day they act like nothing happened and sad to say, but those are some of the guys that just continue to continue with this. And it's, it almost becomes that cry wolf thing, but you can't ever disregard it, you know, because that you just never know when that, that time is the time. And if you could, if you can even call, you know, you're going to get brushed aside, you know, but still call and talk to them. At least you did, did that. Maybe that changed their mind on something, but it just, uh, you know, try to be there for the brotherhood. Tilly, do you think if you, so you transition, basically out of the military, but you stayed in the defense space. You still got to touch the military, the communities that we came from. Do you think that is a, is a really big deal? Do you think you would have gone through a little bit more of, um, uh, I don't know, identity crisis is the best way to describe it. If you had not done something in defense, if you'd tried to step away and completely remove yourself from the military. I think so. I think, yeah, for me, especially because, like we 
you know, talk, said earlier, you know, it was like reunions at some of these trade shows for all of us. And so yeah. I think coming back and, and getting into that group again and being able to, to sit there and tell stories and drink and, and have a good time and laugh with guys again, keeps you going and you look forward to the next show, even though it might be a couple months down the road. Um, so that does help, I think, for us, especially when you're at such a high level, when you, you know, what you're doing in the military, but what we did and where we were. And then if you were just to walk away, that's where I think some guys have had some issues and um, they've had some problems. Yeah, it's interesting, DJ. And I think I said this to you before, like Chili and I have been at shows together for years in, in the jobs that we've had post-career, but it, there's not a ton of guys from our world. There really aren't. Like there's a handful of us sort of sprinkled about and we all tend to look out for one another. Like Mikey just took a new job and like, I, I think honestly, Chile, I think we've gotten better at it over the years of just sort of keeping track of one another. And I think for me, at least it's cause I realized, like you said earlier, like how important that is to me. Like there's very few people that, I know have been there, done that in, in the same capacity and understand. So if I, not that I would, it's just comforting to be around them. But if I had something that I needed to discuss, I know that they're there. Um, so I, like I've said for years, like staying in that, being able to touch the community is how I phrase it, um, helped me with a lot of that. So I was just curious if, if you thought that was a key factor, uh, like you said, or, or not. Yeah. And I think it, it, goes into especially to sum it up like Kyle's phrase for you know Viking tactics stay in the fight and that's what you're doing you're still staying in the fight you're doing it at a different level you're you're still supporting it but yet you're not in that uniform anymore but still you know you still find worth and I think that's the thing is guys you know that high level just like you know professional athletes that high level and all of a sudden they're done and they don't they're they retire what are they doing next you know a lot of a lot of guys I know have issues with that. How many times do you hear, you know, the story of an athlete being now broke and doing, you know, uh, odd things, trying to make money with boxing or something like this or things, you know I mean? It just, they don't know what to do next because their whole life has been one thing. And I think for us being able to touch the community again, you know, just, you know, from ring arm, it doesn't matter. You're just, you're still, giving something back to, you know, those that are still serving. Can we be doing it better from any vantage point of this? I think so. And I know that the uh, things have evolved a lot for, uh, you know, a lot of the, the SF side and things like that to where um, guys are now there's, they'll actually do a lot more for them to retire uh, before it was like, you know, okay, you sign your, your retirement paperwork, you're supposed to have that year to out process, do everything. And I had to do a, a test in a vow, uh, on vehicle stopping a week before my retirement ceremony. So, I mean, it's, uh, you know, we just, yeah, yeah, yeah. Keep doing what you're doing until your last day. And then it's like, okay, sorry, you're gone. Bye. Thanks. Um, but I think now there's a lot more going into it. Um, four guys in that realm to where they're actually saying, okay, look, you're starting your retirement. I don't want to see you for a year. I don't want, I want you to take care of what you need to take care of things like that. Um, I don't know all the programs that are going on with things, but I know there's a lot more where they're placing guys within businesses for, you know, that internship and things like that to where they can kind of seek. Now, even got, 
is even just getting guidance from a company that they're working with for six months doesn't mean they're necessarily going to work for that company, but it opens their eyes to see what's out there and, and, and experience, you know, there's more to it. There's more things there and there's, there's actually some good things to do outside of the military still. Um, so I think there's a lot more going into it, but like anything else, I mean, if, if, if one guy has a problem and, you know, the whole, you know, veteran suicide, things like that, if, if you can stop everything, then we're successful, but it's, you know, we're still failing. If even if one guy, one service member that gets out, you know, has that type of episode. And you're talking about that bridge program where they're bringing them over. Cause we have those, uh, where I'm at here, they, they actually have a, a retired Navy seal that, that does that. He has a corporation here that they bring them in and just farm them out to companies, banks, mm -hmm. if they want to be bankers and stuff like that, and let them kind of work through it and figure out what they're going to do when they first get out. And it, it seems to be working out. It seems like it, it really shows someone, Hey, you weren't just this, you can be this too, you know, even if you didn't know that that was kind of hidden in you. So I think it's a great thing. Right. Let's talk about what you're doing now. Um, it's pretty amazing. And you've been on some pretty big blockbusters. I mean, some of your movies are like at the top and I, in doing my research, I found out you even have, uh, acting credits, uh, your henchman <laughs> number two. Um, oh yeah. Really got my sad card. Number two? Yes. He is henchman. Number two. Oh, I'm excuse me. Not henchman mercenary. Number two. I'm sorry. <laughs> not henchman. Awesome. <laughs> yeah so it's funny because uh you know those those moments that you chance contact to meet somebody and through a friends uh i was at the shot show uh, a buddy of mine uh his wife's birthday uh, a friend of his showed up and he just so happened to be he was doing the security for nicholas cage on a project out in uh, vegas an army of one and um he's like can, oh, can i stop to... you for just a second because i yep. got something that's just on my brain Security for Nicolas Cage. That has to be the wildest job in the world. Can you tell us anything about that? All I know is that he was a very busy guy and had a lot of hand cleaner with him. And that was before <laughs> COVID. Well, he makes like 27 <laughs> movies a year. So, okay. So yeah. you meet him. He, <laughs> I just, when I heard security for Nicolas Cage, I thought that guy has got to be pulling his hair out whoever is security for that guy. Yeah. And this, this was a few years ago, of course, with anything, but, um, he, he said, he introduced me to producer Patrick Newell because they were filming. He's like, Oh, you need to meet Patrick. He's just a great guy, all this stuff. And, um, so I entered, I said, okay, Hey, we're going to be at the cry party, uh, this, you know, tomorrow night, if you guys want to come and all this. And so he, he literally brought Patrick to the cry party. And so we had talked for about 30 minutes there when you, I don't know how we heard each other because it's so loud in the event, but um, exchange contact info and I hit him up like a week later or something, just thanking him for coming out, things like that. And then we just started chatting and developed a friendship over, went out uh, to visit him, his family out in uh, California for a little bit, my wife and I. And then he just always wanted to bring me in on projects and finally was able to really happen. I, I helped with how it ends. Not a not a huge piece there, but really the Gray Man was my um, my my first real movie. Of course, it was the first one from start to finish. Um, but I got I uh, helped out on the original extraction for a month in Thailand on the bridge sequence as well. But Patrick brought me in all that, and um, you know it's yeah been an amazing piece so far. 
Well, how it ends, uh, pretty cool. Force Whitaker uh, is in yes. that movie. Um, and and th- that is not by any means a small budget film, but I think you're brushing over extraction. That's where you played mercenary number two. So we need <laughs> yeah. to, I think we need to drill down on this point a little bit about uh, extraction. Um, I, I want people to understand when you come from that world of the military and you guys are, you have to, uh, of course there's joking and stuff, but you have to be so serious all the time in everything you're doing. And then you come to this and you're in essence teaching these people how to be what you guys were. How does that whole thing work? And how do you move through that mentally talking to these people who have probably never held a gun into making them into the badasses that they are in the movies? You know, it's funny because it's, uh, you know, when I went into extraction, because they, they were already filmed, they already filmed in India, they, they moved to Thailand, and then I came over for that bridge sequence. And um, it was, you know, you come in with piss and vinegar, oh, it's got to be this, it's got to be that and everything else. But w- what was cool was there was a couple other veterans already on the project. Uh, one of the guys, Russ Cannon, who is a good friend of mine, and he was a retired Marine, but he was a guy that went through the Q course in the 80s and everything else. So, I mean, just a solid individual and a great smart ass like like the rest of us so we got along really well and but russ had some good good mentoring for me and i i actually got to do uh the gray man with him as well as uh then we just finished excuse me we did extraction to finish that in april over in prague and i was with russ again but he was like hey look we're not making a documentary it's not your movie and you're here to advise. So it's it's about understanding that, you know, you're not in the military. You're not doing this, you know, as far as coming in, you're going to change this. This is wrong. This is wrong. No, because you have to go in there. It's somebody else's project. And you're just trying to give them the best tools you can to make it better. And or I should say, you don't always make the story better, but you, you know, you make the character believable in what he's doing with his technical skill, you know, and tactical skill, uh, with firearms and everything else. Um, so, you know, somebody like Chris Hemsworth was, was easy because I mean, super talented individual and just a totally down to earth guy. And, but just very good at what he's doing. And he's had a little bit of background playing with guns and everything else. Um, but there was a lot of, a lot of some of the, the Thai stunt guys and everything like that, that they don't really do anything. Um, so it was also then ter- talking through an interpreter. So it was kind of like the SF mission doing a FID mission, the foreign internal defense going out there and let's build a school, but you got to teach, between, you know, teach through an interpreter. Uh, so it was a great learning curve for me on, on extraction. Um, and, you know, again, there were a few other military guys, another Marine um, and an SF guy, uh, so it was, it was good to, to, to really be brought in that way, having that many veterans and stuff on that project already, because then it helped me shape my battle space then and not go in there thinking I'm going to change the world and no, this is wrong. So the whole thing is shit. Um, you know, you guys go in there and, and ask what, you know, they're wanting, um, and then make it the best for, for what, uh, you think will will work for that piece. And yeah, it's Hollywood. So it's a movie, it's entertainment, you know? Um, but it's great to do firearms training with these guys because, um, you know, you're taking them and you're, you're 
actually getting a lot more intimate time because then we're one-on-one -on, -one on the range. So a lot more trust comes into play. So for me with the gray man, especially with Brian Gosling, it was great because we had the, the time that we built on the range before we ever started shooting. So then there's trust already. And so, so he wanted me around all the time, you know, whenever really he was on set with anything. Um, and it was great because, you know, sometimes it was just there and maybe not really interject anything into the, the stuff that's going on because they figure it out themselves in some of the stuff. But when it came to really manipulating the guns and doing things or just even uh, some of the reasons why or the thought process, I mean, it was great because he wanted to, to hear it. He wanted to get that information uh, and same. I've been just very lucky with the, the film so far and, you know, with extraction uh, extraction too, as well. Like say with Chris Hemsworth, I mean, you know, just easygoing people, uh, just, I don't know, just fun. <laughs> really? Are they, are they, uh, uh, I mean, you and I both know this and we laugh about it. Like, are they, they obviously have an impression of you because I'm sure someone tells them your background and, or at least gives them something and, and they say whatever they say, are they, are they surprised when they realize or have the realization that you're just, we're just regular dudes. Like you're just a regular dude that's, that's done some shit and you're, you're pretty smart on a few things and you might be able to help them out. Like, is it, is it, a, is it an epiphany or, or is it over time? That was Chris low key telling you don't get a big head. No, 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 it wasn't at 100%. all. No, no, but I like I like I know Chili and like Chili's not he's not a bravado guy. Like right. he he's more like me. It's why we get along. Is is he is who he is. I'll let my actions speak for themselves. And right, it is what it is. So I I bet it's really entertaining when they have this impression of you because you were a a a, a commando and. And then he gets on the range with him. And like Chili says, there's a lot of trust there and it's one-on-one. -on -one. It's probably a funny moment when the light bulb goes off and they realize you're just a good, normal dude like that knows a lot more about that world than they do. It, it is funny. And one of the things that gets because like with the military advising, you're usually attached. Well, you're, you're pretty much part of the stunt team. So you're helping a lot, a lot with things there. And it's like when I show up, they're like, they see me, you know, I'm, I'm a tall five, six, five, six kind of fella, you know, and, uh, they're like, damn, we, we thought you'd be taller, you know, shit like that. And it's like, cause they, this persona, oh, this commando is coming. He's going to do all this. And it's like, Oh, where's, oh, who are you? Yeah. Can you step aside? No, no, no. It's me. <laughs> no, it's me. <laughs> yeah. Jumping up behind the last guy. Yeah. No, I it's love me. that. They uh, say that to Dalton all the time in Roadhouse. So don't even worry. Exactly. About right. <laughs> So it's funny because then it's already right away that they, they have this mystique and it's just to, to, to hear that it's comical. Um, but like with Ryan, I knew we were going to get along really well with things when the second day uh, for shooting, he came in and we were, then I was loading up the mags and stuff again and everything. Cause he had to eat like every like hour to bulk up for the gray man and everything. It seemed like, but then he, he sitting there, he's like, Hey, can I go shoot that? plate over there again and there was it's like an eight inch plate it was about 40 yards out um, and we were just using uh glocks and and he goes and i said yeah yeah go ahead man here's some mags and so he's over there and then five and then he's hitting it a few times and he goes that was driving me crazy all night last night he goes because the day before he didn't hit it and he's like I, I had to come in and hit that and i said i knew we were gonna have a good time out here 
Yeah. You know, so when you see that, because they want to be, you know, the best that that you can make them, you know, they want to be believable for everybody and they want people yeah. to, to, to look at them and say, yeah, okay. Yeah. He is tactically and technically proficient and everything. So, um, it's funny with stuff like that. And then, yeah. So, you know, we'd sit around here and there, you know, just BS between sets or between scenes sometimes and, and, and chat. And then he just, he, he'd ask other questions. Well, what would you think about this or that? And like one time we're talking, and I went up to him and he didn't ask for things, but I could tell just the way the scene was going. And I'm like, hey, look, based off this, what happens here? I said, you would be pissed. You'd be pissed as hell with this for, you know, what happened and what this person did and everything else and stuff. And he's like, oh, OK. And Brian's a very quiet guy anyway. But then, like, I was like, dang, wait a minute. Did I say too much to him? You know, so the, the, <laughs> a couple of days later, and I'm like, hey, man, I just want to you know, if I overstepped and everything like that, he said, no, 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 I, that, that helped me. He said, that helped me with something that made me think of this and do this. And no, please tell me do this. And I said, cause it, I said, Hey, I don't want to be an asshole and stuff with things. And he's like, no, 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 tell me. So it was good. You know, again, that's where I think that, that trust and that relationship building happens really on the range with us. And it's, uh, you know, they learn that, yeah, you just are another guy, you know, and you're not sitting there trying to, to blow smoke up them, you know, I mean, you're just there to, to, to teach them a skill and make them as proficient as you can. So it helps. Yeah. I, DJ, I want to share something real quick. Okay. And I'll, I'll let Chili elaborate, but he said something funny to me sort of relatively early on in this process. And we talk not as often as we probably should, but, but regular at least. And, and so I always ask him about the, you know, doing the, the, the Hollywood stuff and, I said, you know, what's it like? Like you're gone, you know, all this time. And I asked you about like op tempo chili, like on a set. Do you remember what you said to me? No, no, I don't. He said, he said, Chris, it's just like a deployment. And I said, what? <laughs> and he goes, yeah. He goes, I spent a whole lot of time sitting around. And then at some point somebody comes by and goes, all right, get your kid on. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, and we suit up and we go shoot a bunch of scenes and then we come back and we sit around and I BS with the stunt guys. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. It's so much like a movie because you're, you're not going to go hungry because there's a food truck right there. So it's just like, you know, you're sitting you know, there. I, I had a couple of final questions. One, did you take your shirt off at any point during the filming <laughs> of any of these films? Hmm. Uh, no, I didn't get to. It was kind of cold in Prague, this last one. And then on the bridge in uh, in Thailand for the original extraction, I didn't Once get Once again, to, where uh, you played Mercenary 2. Yeah, you keep too. forgetting that. You keep brushing over that. But <laughs> I think... Don't overshadow Chris Helmsworth. I mean, he was being polite. It's true. It's true. But I'm thinking for Mercenary 3 or Mercenary 1, whichever one you play in Extraction 2, Are you? do you have a role in Extraction 2? Um. Yeah, we're. I'm, I'm another mercenary. I'm not sure how they're listing it, like anything else, until the credits come out. But uh, you know, I yeah. Hopefully, I mean, we should be seen because you know, Rake lives. Well, I I think that <laughs> this should be credited as shirtless mercenary. I think that's the way we go here because I think it's going to open up the door for you in the movie industry. The bad thing is now that I'm in my fifties, 
I don't look like my 30s, so I'd try to keep my Do shirt any on of these us? days. <laughs> hey, what are you talking about? I, I look I look better than I did back okay. in the Okay, all right. <laughs> but you climb mountains all the You just got back from climbing mountains and stuff. We, we don't do that. At least I don't do that. I was going to ask you, too. You said you never go hungry. How is the craft services on a movie set? You know, some sometimes it's it's good sometimes it's it's okay you know but it's never bad because there's always something that you can eat uh in prague and czech republic they they love a lot of sandwiches so there's like sandwiches all throughout on the the food truck itself that you can get but then at lunch you know you get a couple choices of meals and um so it's it's not it, it is it's kind of like going to the chow hall i mean you get you know like in uh you know in well, it was up in Balad. There we go, up in Balad, and then in in Bagram, uh, in Afghanistan, though you had different you know units with their chow hall. So this night might be fajita night. This might night over here is taco night and stuff. So you'd get, hit those chow halls for that, and you know you that's kind of like the way it was there. I mean, but uh, the nice thing with the Russos is they really like their food as well, and they they get a lot of food delivered on the set. So uh, there's some good pizza, some good hamburgers. Now that there's a uh, if I'm saying it correctly, Naso Maso, I think it was, it's the butcher shop in Prague, but they're also a restaurant. And so they, the best hamburger, you get your, you know, Wagyu beef burger. I mean, right there, you pick it out, they cook it, you get it. Well, the Russos would have those delivered on set too. So, you know, there's good food all around. Well, let's ask you real quick. How do you have your hamburger made? Let, let's get deep inside chili today. Deep inside? I mean, I don't well, know. I, I, I didn't always, mean, yeah, I didn't mean it like that. Uh, let's. I mean, that's yeah. I mean, it, woo, getting getting hot and heavy. Yeah. Now. But um, <laughs> the I, I love you know steak, um, and my uh, stepson makes the best steak since COVID. He does it with the the uh, flat iron skillet and then finishes it off in the oven and everything. And I I like my steak medium, you know, especially the fillets and all that stuff. I, I'm a medium guy. And, um, when I was younger, I ate a lot, <laughs> a lot more rare meat in that. I remember as a kid, I'd cook my own hamburgers. My dad, when I, he'd finally let me on the barbecue grill because, um, I didn't like the way he cooked the hamburgers. So I'd cook them and they were pretty much warm inside. Steak um, tartare. Yeah. And I do like steak tartare. So it's, Ooh. you know, <laughs> I will say for the last three years, I have uh, gone in with my mom and I buy half a cow at the beginning of the year. So we have freezers that are just for the cow and it's the best thing I've ever done because you got meat year round and steaks and they cut it however you want and stuff like that. So it's good to hear that uh, people I, I can't eat anything rare, though. If it's mooing, I I'm just it's not for me. Chris, you're a hunter. Rare, medium. I'm a medium rare guy. Okay. Yeah. yeah. If I'm cooking it myself, I uh, I might burn the hair off of it. But in a restaurant, I'm <laughs> medium rare. <clears throat> well, I, I will tell you, Chili, you're working with some of the greatest directors. The Russo brothers, I would hands down say, are the greatest probably action directors out there right now. Um, I tell you, it's the great stuff though. they did with Marvel and then with the gray man, it, they're, they're doing fantastic stuff. 
and what's great is you know they like the collaborative effort they're not just like oh we're coming in this is what's happening you know um and joe came out to help on extraction two for some bit too because of covid you know uh sam hargrave got covid here and there you know at one point so he was down for a little bit uh and you know but he would come out and it'd be it's funny because there's a lot of times with them i developed the trust just like the actors with the the russos that like they would be like oh well what would we do here chili you know how would we do this and um like the in the gray man the 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 big sequence that we had the gun battle in the, the center of Prague, basically in, in the square uh, where we had the different elements coming together to get them. And then the Erna coming in and everything else uh, when Ryan was, you know, handcuffed to the, uh, the bench that nobody could shoot him. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but they had like their points that they want to hit. And then they were like, Hey, you know, how would we do this? So it was great because I mean, they, they really look at it as, you know, the best idea type wins really. And, uh, it was, they're great to work with. And I just, uh, I hope to get a lot more chances to, to actually work with them because it's truly a collaborative effort. Any film that you would like to work on any of the John wicks that are getting ready or anything like that? Um, I really hope to be involved in the, uh, the story of, uh, Chapman. Um, uh, you know, that's, that's the one that I really would like to be because we relieved, you know, the, that SEAL team that April when we got there in 02. Um, I didn't personally know Chapman, but my wife taught his, uh, his kid in school. Um, so she, she was there with all that on the family side after everything happened to him. Uh, and then when Bush came down and spoke and she was with the family and everything. So I'm really hoping to be involved in that just because um, I, I want it to make it about him and make sure that he's portrayed in, in the right manner for what he did and, and the person that he was at, as a father as well from, you know, all the friends that I know that are definitely knew him really well. And when does that, they're not already shooting that they're in pre-production right now on that, right? Uh, well, pre-production. Yeah. It's, yeah. it hasn't kicked off. Nothing's really kicked off yet. The whole idea and a lot of the, the, um, you know, kind of the, uh, I guess just the, the thought process of, you know, coming right. up with the, that. But, uh, I know, um, yeah, Sam Hargrave supposed to still be directing that. And that's what I, what I hope to be involved with. Uh, and he, and he's great to work with as well, because again, he's like, you know, it'd be like, Hey Sam, this, this is going on or this was like when we were filming extraction two and stuff. And he's like, well, go fix it. You know? And it was again too the trust, you know, yeah. cause I wasn't in there to try and, you know, be a, a first sergeant on this, this, and this, you know, it was to, to work with, not against. And we're all there to make something, you know, as a, as a project that's everybody can believe in. Well, let's wrap this up by, I want to put you both on the spot. Chris best, uh, memory of Chile and Chile best memory of Chris. Oh, geez. Yeah. These are spots. All right. Wow. Um, Okay, I'll say something. So for me, it's kind of a, a brings up more than one little incident or more than one thing. But, you know, for Chris coming to the team in 02 and, you know, we're all young in a way there. But, you know, to see him progress, then when I went back after uh, I was, you know, cadre member, then I went back as the officer major uh, and going to deploy. But to see Chris move up in the team itself and to see, you know, 
really just how he matured along the way and, you know, was respected within, you know, the, the team, the squadron, the troop, everything else. I think that was cool to see because it was, you saw the growth, you know, I had, I wouldn't say some of that. And I mean, we had some initial impact with things, good, bad, or, or indifferent, but then being gone for that 18, 18 months to about 20 months, I think I was gone and then coming back and then seeing now how far he's actually progressed and where he was and what he was doing, setting up the routes, doing all this, doing everything else. And not just, you know, being a member of the team, but also now he's mentoring a couple of younger guys, you know, within that. So that was cool to really see things like that. And then, you know, that you're doing some of the right things and it validates, you know, sometimes those ass chewings. <laughs> right. Chris. M mine was, uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Mine's a little, a little more emotional. Mine was um, getting chili back after a bunch of years, if I'm honest. Um, I learned a lot from him. Uh, he was definitely a mentor early in my career. I was a young guy um, on a very experienced team, and, and we stayed together for, frankly, a pretty long time in the building. We did a, a number of rotations together, um, and that really wasn't the norm after that. And then um, you know, I had a break, like I left and did other things and I retired and he retired and, and it took us a number of years, but to reconnect, uh, and to reconnect, frankly, as, uh, guys that had been through a bunch of life experience and then found their way sort of back. And then now to be supportive of one another, you know, if I can be there for him or help him, like he helped me, um, early on in my career, um, that's very rewarding for me. So for me, the highlight was, was getting him back in my life. And, and like Chili said, like, you know, that community, there's not very many of us. Um, so it's, it's really wonderful to see somebody that you looked up to, uh, and that you respect and that you care about, have success and, and be happy. Um, and then, and then include you in that. And, and so you get to kind of share in their joy and, and their success, I think, has been one of the more rewarding things for me. Um, but yeah, we had some great rotations, and I love the shit out of that. But uh, I think a much more nowadays, like Chili said, you know, seeing something down the road, that's how I feel too. Um, and getting him back after all these years is really special. All right. Who knows? Maybe we'll get Chris out with us on some of these projects in the future with oh, the movies. Man. <laughs> I'm so we can have. We could have two giant commandos on <laughs> Mercenary 3 and Mercenary 4. I cannot wait. Yeah, I'll be right. Mercenary 3.5 and he can yeah. be 4. <laughs> they say the camera adds 10 pounds. Maybe we'll be all right. <laughs> yeah, with me, I always ask how many cameras are on me. So, yeah. um, so here's the thing. What's next for you? Um, I mean, for me, it's what's been really nice right now is actually being home for a bit um you know just reestablishing relationship back home um with my my wife uh you know she got to come out with me for the movie for for a good bit but it it still wasn't an everyday thing and then we both went you know her father passed in uh january and my father passed in february so it was a kind of a rough time for us on that and then i was finishing up the movie uh, so I think just coming back and really reconnecting a little bit more 
with my wife in general, because again, everything she's done for me and supported and been there for me, but then also getting to enjoy the grandkids, you know, cause there's, uh, my, uh, eldest stepson, um, you know, we've got a four year old and two year old. So the two granddaughters. So, I mean, that's, yeah, that's fun. Just being able to enjoy that. Did you ever think in your life that that would be the answer? Like you, you think about all the adventure, all the excitement you've had your whole life. And then when you talk about what's next and you're like, I just like hanging out with my grandkids and being with my family. It, it's such a weird state to put yourself in when you think about it. Would you agree with that? Oh yeah. Cause you know, you look at your parents and stuff and everything and it's like, you know, that, they wanted the family. They loved the kids together. Like my dad used to always say, Oh, got my three kids with me and all this stuff. And you're like, yeah, yeah. Okay, great. Can we go back out? Cause we're going to go party tonight, you know, things like that. But <laughs> it's those little things there. Now I see what he was talking about, you know, with right. a lot of that. And, uh, you know, I still want to do the, the movie stuff, but I think now it's more of a collaborative effort for me and my wife now to decide and to, to move forward with those things instead of, cause I was a little selfish with some of it with COVID. Um, you know, and again, a lot of lessons learned, but, you know, just, I think it's about us making the, the right decision for us for the future. So where can people find you, Chili? Uh, yeah, just on the Instagram with Chili Palmer shooting. Um, I don't really have anything else, uh, as far as social media, anything other than that. Um, you know, and, uh, like, like anything else, hopefully the, all the searches are good and not come up bad on some wrong page. Yeah, well, yeah, we hope not. Chris, where can people find you? Uh, C Van Sant one two three um, on Insta. Van Sant LLC is my consulting company, and All Secure Foundation, as always, um, is my charity of choice. Uh, please go follow and support that organization and everything that they stand for. Well, guys, this has been an amazing conversation. I think it it was so insightful to hear it. And I love to hear guys that know each other and talk and can tell the stories that maybe no one would ever hear if it was just one-on-one -on -one interview. So Chris, thank you so much for that. Chili, thank you for coming on guys. If you want more of me, you know where you can find me on Instagram at the DTD underscore podcast. You can find me on Facebook at the DTD podcast. And you can find me on YouTube where all these conversations are in video form at the DTD podcast. Don't forget, though, dtdpodcast.net. That's your one-stop shop. It'll have pictures of Chili, pictures of Chris, everything that they were doing in the past, everything that they're doing now, and all the links to get a hold of them or to look into more of their story. Also, don't forget, you can watch audio and you can watch audio, uh, video and listen to the audio on dtdpodcast.net. And don't forget to stop by our sponsor, Police Coffee at policecoffee.com. Don't forget, whenever you go to them, DJK10 will give you a 10% discount. Police Coffee is an officer-owned business dedicated to crafting the finest coffees and blends, and they're shipped to you as soon as they're made for the freshest coffee available. It's fresh roasted by people who know what it means to stay vigilant, and their specialty coffees don't miss on one drop of flavor. Remember, though, the best thing about this company is the best thing you'll find out about them. It serves an important cause, giving back to the community. 50% of their profits go towards helping family members of police officers who fell in the line of duty. So don't forget to stop by policecoffee.com, DJK10 for 10% off. That's going to be it for this week. Thank you so much. Make sure that you share, like, and subscribe. We're only 99 subscribers away from 1,000. So get out there, get it done, share, like, and subscribe. We'll catch you guys on the next one. Chili, thank you so much. Chris, 
We'll see you on the next one. We're out of here.